Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello. 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 I'm Craig Fields. I'm David Long. And I'm Ranjit Namra. And you're listening to uh, a very special episode of week 49 <laughs> of Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast, where we've gone out of our way to watch as many films as we possibly, humanly possibly can, um, even the bad ones, so you, the listener, don't have to. That's right, and we've got a great show for you all today with three presenters and three films. We do indeed, and uh, what have we got on this week's show then, please? The first film we're kicking off with is Mank. David Fincher directs a screenplay from his late father, Jack Fincher, about how the greatest film ever, Citizen Kane, was created. We're then going to review On The Rocks. Well, David and Ranji are, and it's starring Rashida Jones and Bill Murray, and its director is Sophia Coppola. Oh, my God, I could never say her name. Coppola. I know, I know. Thank you for that, David, and that is why you and Ranji are reviewing this film. Uh, It's not. I just don't have Apple TV+, Plus. but, uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, let's see if I can say this. (laughs) We'll then be rounding off the show with a review of Hillbilly... Elegy yes. director Ron Howard, <laughs> director Amy Adams, and Glenn Close in a very reflective movie. I'll also be talking about some big news with Craig and David. So it's actually been over a month since we did a main sh- a main show a main show a main show, um, and we're now out of a lockdown. Vaccines are appearing. Monoliths are appearing across the world (laughs) and uh, Donald is on his way out of the White House and I'm currently recording from a pod, uh, a pod that resides in St Albans. Uh, This pod belongs to a company called Pluto and uh, I'll be talking a little bit more about them, maybe in about five minutes time, I suppose. Um, But yeah, I just want to know, first of all, David, how are you? I'm not going to lie, Craig, I'm a bit stressed. I've caused you no end of problems. We're obviously, (laughs) because of COVID, we are recording remotely and I've had, I've wanted to smash the living hell out of my Sky internet box. Damn ye, Sky, because we've tried various ways of recording and it hasn't been working. But finally, I can hear you guys. I can see you guys. And I'm really, really excited um, for the show. Today's been one of those days where anything and everything has gone wrong. Hopefully this is going to put it right. Oh, well, I do hope that you're you're feeling a little bit better now that we are actually recording. <laughs> we can see each other um, and we can hear each other. Um, I think Ranjit's got the unfortunate setup of being able to hear himself twice, a slight delay in him, his own vocals. Um, I'm sorry, Ranjit, about that. Not just me, Craig. I can hear you twice. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, so this is going to be interesting. If I, if I pause, it's just because I think someone else is talking, but it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, well... I mean, I mean, this isn't the strangest and most difficult day. I mean, it's not this. I mean, this train of thought where I'm going here, I don't know. But <laughs> the, the monoliths, though, how crazy yeah. is that? I Are mean, you... one one turned up today in a potato field in Belgium, and if that doesn't sum up 2020, I don't know to what does. Did there? 
Yeah, another one turned up in Belgium today in a potato field of all places. The thing is, I can't now separate what's real and and what's not real in terms... I mean, are they all real? I mean, are they all not real? I don't understand which ones are aliens, which ones aren't, because uh, <laughs> the one that's... alien. It might be an alien. The one that yeah. turned up on the Isle of Wight isn't an alien because a designer took credit for that one. But is the designer an alien? Oh, Ranch, you've just set a whole blue bar there. <laughs> it could be. It really could be. And but but speaking about aliens and planets and space, I don't know how those link together, but the Pluto pod that I mentioned earlier. So they very <laughs> kindly let me use their pod tonight um, to record this episode. So what is this? Well, they've taken over a shop in uh, in St. Albans town in, in the city centre where they've got various pods, about six pods at the minute. Um, and they are basically to allow people that work from home to do zoom meetings or uh, lots of other things podcast recording like i'm doing right now in a covid secure acoustically treated pod um so you don't get the dogs or the kids or anybody else in your place that you would work from home in the background of your videos in the audio in the background all that sort of stuff whilst also remaining covid secure and i think it's a really really great idea and hopefully the audio quality sounds fantastic and uh, thank you pluto for letting me record here tonight it's really really appreciated are you so telling you us you're been... recording inside of a pod yes i am <laughs> i mean I, so, there's no how though so are you in one of those monoliths i mean it's all connected <laughs> isn't it it's like 2001 space odyssey odyssey oddity odyssey um it it is, isn't it? Like monoliths appearing. That's two thousand and one. Yeah. Being in a pod, open the pod doors. Is that is that the saying? Is that is that the line in in two thousand and one? Have you both seen two thousand and one? Yeah, a while yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hal. Yeah. I mean, there is a red. Oh, we'll have to take a picture of this. But there is like a to open the door. It's a sensor, right? You wave your hand in front of it, and the magnets <laughs> oh op- and the magnets unclip, and the door opens. <laughs> Honestly, and there's like dials for air conditioning and there's a big light. You guys can see I'm very well lit here. I'll take a screenshot of that so everybody else can see it as well. But it's extraordinary. And I'm I'm really pleased to be probably the first podcaster to be using one of these ever. How cool Live is that? Live from Pluto. Live from Pluto. <laughs> exactly, David. Love it. Absolutely you're, love you're it. You're in the outer outer reaches of the solar system on Pluto and you have a better bloody Wi-Fi signal than I do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's, there's, they've got an extraordinarily great speed internet connection here. It's um, over 200 megabyte or megabit download speeds, um, nearly 50 meg upload. It's, for me, as a geek, this is... This is next level stuff. I'm loving it in here right now. It's great. Nice. It really is good. Um, anything happened during your guys' last month since we last spoke at all? Anything, maybe? I don't know. Um, I had a 26th birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Ranji. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and uh, Craig, I, I think you're trying to deflect. Didn't, didn't you have a, a 26th birthday as well? Yeah, the, uh, quite a few years ago. Thanks, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I actually had my 30th birthday on the 6th of December. Um, wonderful messages from the podcast team. Wonderful messages from my friends. David, your your message to me in a video um, that my wonderful girlfriend put together into a collaborative piece of work um, was extraordinary. Um, I've never seen a man wear a orange shirt that was possibly too small for you in such a great way. Um, oh, 
for the for, the, for the listener who who hasn't seen this shirt basically this was a shirt that i wore a few years ago i thought i would dress up smartly for this video and literally the buttons were near enough <laughs> bursting off i have put on so much timber over lockdown so i said to craig excuse me while i slip into something more comfortable and then came back in a full suit as one does but i meant every word of what i said on that video happy birthday craig you what you've done for me in my life is is tremendous and you're such a good friend to me and i love you dearly oh thanks man i really appreciate that like it did actually move me to tears in in laughter for number one um, but it was it wasn't <laughs> an overwhelming emotional roller coaster of a ride i I'll, I'll be honest it was it was great um one of my friends did take a look at my um my style from the last 25 years maybe maybe 20 years um with long luscious hair moving right the way through to insane pictures that we won't talk about but um <laughs> long luscious hair yeah, those were the days craig they were they were um yeah i mean what else is there to talk about donald being out of the white house i mean our last episode main show was quite political at one point wasn't it i did yes go a bit and we're not going to go there again but uh, <laughs> i are. was wrong about my prediction yeah you really um, did predict that donald trump would stay and i did well he got um many million more votes than he did previously but unfortunately he doesn't seem to understand that joe biden got many millions more than he did. <laughs> therefore he has in fact lost um he's struggling to understand this it is um, a little bit which... ludicrous isn't it it's a little bit it's a little I mean, bit bad on the for America. How else was he gonna, was he going to go out? He wasn't going to go out quietly, was he? It's just no. completely on character. Yeah, I mean, I'm still waiting for them to literally go into the White House and drag him out. That's going to well, happen. Well, I, I I genuinely think that that he he could just refuse to leave, and the army could be sent in. I mean, there is talk of the army being deployed at the White House, but let's not get too political. I don't think they need um, the army. They just need pest control, don't they? <laughs> oh. <laughs> to be fair that did make Just me laugh. <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly uh, but before we do move on to the to, to the crux of what this show is about we do have uh, an email from one of our longtime listeners Laureline uh, she wanted to just let us know her thoughts on the Gal Gadot playing Cleopatra which we spoke about in a previous episode um, we did admit very freely that we didn't have a lot of information about this but we wanted to ask our listeners what they thought about this um, was this the right kind of casting to happen and uh, Laureline's thoughts I thought were really brilliant um educated piece of conversation that she's put in here something that we should do more often is do the research about what we're going to talk about but as it was something that was kicking off on twitter i thought it was a a good thing even in the news to talk to talk about um mm. and and i wanted that collaboration with our listeners to tell us what they thought and uh lawline has certainly done that so she says my thoughts on gal gadot playing cleopatra I'm incredibly amazed at the lack of geographical knowledge of people criticising the casting. I mean, people are... <laughs> people do suck at geography, don't they? Um, so many seem to have got no further than Egypt is in Africa. Therefore, someone from Africa should play the part. But Gadot was born in a suburb of Tel Aviv, which is in Israel. And the, as the crow flies, the distance to Alexandria... Cleopatra's birthplace is just 290 miles. So someone born in Newcastle couldn't play someone born in <laughs> London because that's the distance we're talking about here. Then there's the point you mentioned that Cleopatra is for a... Now, 
I'm very going to struggle to pronounce this, but it's a it's a dynasty of some sort, uh, (laughs) and is Hellenic rather than Egyptian. So I don't think there's a case for whitewashing when you criticise the hiring of someone who actually was born that close to Cleopatra's actual birthplace. Calls for just hiring a North African actress seem more problematic than casting Gadot, an actress from Tripoli. Well, that's 1,170 miles, but I guess it's all North Africa, so that's okay because it's all Africa, isn't it? Seems (laughs) that's a lot more wrong than casting Gadot. As for getting an Egyptian actress to star in a $200 million film, straight off the bat, off the top of your head, Name an Egyptian actress who is well-known enough to star in a high-budget film. Can any of you do that? No, but I want to come back to that point. (laughs) Okay. Um, Actually, I was going to suggest May Kalamuri. I can't say her last name. I'm really terrible at pronouncing things. I'm so sorry. Um, who appears in Rami as Rami's Egyptian cousin, but bugger me, she was born in Bayran. Um, you don't just get $200 million handed to you to make a film. You have to persuade people to lend you the money. And having an Egyptian unknown actress probably means the film wouldn't get made. And I think that's a pretty valid point there as well. Ranji, did you want to scoot back to uh, the Egyptian actress to star in a $200 million film? Name one. Yeah. Because um, that's the problem, though, isn't it? Like um, those actresses, people, those those actresses don't have that opportunity to start with. So that's part of the problem. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, Yeah. it makes perfect sense. So the opportunity does not befall to these. actresses to to star in in maybe even a low budget film and working their way up to a high budget film they just don't seem to be happening so maybe if an actress was given that opportunity that was off egyptian descent but the problem is as well like we like we we were saying that actually cleopatra was from somewhere else and and all those things but i think i think lawline has pretty much summed it up the distances yeah, between yeah, these places does it matter it's yeah. like it's like newcastle someone from newcastle playing somebody who was born in london you know yeah. accents can be made like it it all really depends on i don't know i mean i i think i think gado would be fantastic as cleopatra she's proven herself as somebody who is a very very capable actress in action films and mm-hmm. other other films as well and um I think she's actually been cast in a, a spy thriller, actually. I don't know if you guys have seen yeah, that. Yeah, but... I read that the other day. It's sort of meant to be like a James Bond, Mission Impossible type franchise, which she'll be taking on on her own. Yeah, which, which is brilliant. Yeah, I think that's really exciting. And I'm looking forward to that. But, you, you know, fantastic email from Lawline. And I think it's a really educated one and one that I, I enjoyed reading because it made me feel like, Craig, you should do your research more. And <laughs> I will. I promise you, listeners, dear listeners, I will do my research more before I even talk about news stuff um, and share my opinions on them. Um, so moving on swiftly, um, shall we have a box office rundown? I mean, is there a box office? I mean, have you read the script? I've looked at the script, but I I suppose, well, with the lockdown, I suppose technically there is a box office. Um, did you want to talk about it or are we just going to literally read it off? 
we're going to just literally read it off in the box okay. of the in at 10 Catherine oh, Jenkins what are you doing we need the theme oh I'm so sorry I'm guessing you can't hear it I can I can <laughs> I'm just being an idiot this is the box office rundown Brought to you by Is It Worth It, the film review podcast. That's right. It is a box office rundown. There is a box office rundown and it's for the weekend. Um, Well, it was for the weekend of the fifth. No, the fourth to the sixth. There we go. So that's Friday. Friday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Um, David, if you want to kick us off at number 10, please. In at number 10, we have Catherine Jenkins' Christmas Spectacular. Oh, I bet that was brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can adamantly say with full confidence that we will not be watching this. (laughs) (laughs) Ranch, what's Um, in at number nine? (laughs) (laughs) In at number nine is the Christmas classic, Die Hard. Yes, Die Hard is a true classic film for Christmas. And I can, um, I, I do you remember we did a Christmas special a couple of years ago, David? We did, yeah. I was thinking we'll have to replug that and repost that yeah. um, as, as the festivities um, commence um, later this month. But yeah, I do remember. Did we include Die Hard? I can't remember. Yes, if we did. it was my, my number one. Superb. I know. Um, I know. It's the Brilliant 30th film. anniversary. Can you believe it? Yeah, I mean, Bruce Willis still looks exactly the same, doesn't he? The man that does not age. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, go on. Uh, in at number eight, we have The Grinch. Um, I'm assuming this is the Jim Carrey version. Um, it's 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 fantastic. Um, Jim Carrey gives a brilliant performance. Um, it's a really heartwarming, um, funny uh, family film that should be seen over Christmas. So if you've never seen The Grinch with Jim Carrey, um, check it out. I'm just going to double check and have a look and see if it is if it is that one, or if um, it is the Benedict Cumberpatch one. Yeah, I, I mean, it says it's from Universal's distributor. I can't see what year the Grinch was made. It doesn't say, so we can assume it could be the Steve Carell or it could be the Jim Carrey. Either is is good, but I, the Jim Carrey one definitely clinches it for me. I don't mm. know about you guys, but yeah, um, we'll move I haven't on. Seen any? You haven't seen either of them. Oh, nope. Ranch, get on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in at number seven, we have Pixie. This was reviewed on our last episode, I believe, of week 48. Yeah, it must have been, because it's yeah. today's week 49, so it must have been. Yeah. Um, David, can you remember what we said about this film at all? I think you enjoyed it more than I did, Craig. Um, I I had problems with this film. Um, I thought there were unnecessary scenes. For example, the scene where it lasted about two or three minutes and they seemingly just got intoxicated on a beach um, whilst they had a couple of cadavers in the back of their car. Um, I didn't think this was the kind of behaviour that um, people on the run for, well murder would be involved in um i thought there was a problem with the edit i thought it was a little bit too long um some of the humor didn't land for me i remember some ridiculous slow motion with catholic priests firing shotguns it was all a bit of a mess for me and i didn't really enjoy it but i know you did craig yeah no i really did i thought this was a a real irish jig of a film like it was really upbeat despite having some themes of of well, crushingness 
pain, loneliness, perhaps in there, um, but true friendship as well in 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 and making friends and just a ludicrous plot going on. And I really thoroughly enjoyed. Yes, thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I really, I, re- I genuinely did. I really did enjoy it. Um, but number six, David, here's one you've seen. Ah, uh, so it is our good friend, Mr. Liam Neeson in Honest Thief. Um, <laughs> again, going off the cuff from what I remember, about 70% of this film was worth it. And I genuinely do mean that. I thought the, the protagonist was interesting. Uh, I thought that Liam Neeson's love interest was interesting. Um, the action sequences were quite enjoyable. Um, were they interesting? The Pun. Were the action sequences interesting? They were, yeah. Um, <laughs> but the but the ending, Craig, the ending was... Interesting? Did I say interesting quite a lot? <laughs> yeah. Oh, did I really? I just thought everything was going to be interesting. Oh, right. I, I can't wait to listen to back to this show. Guess what? It was interesting. <laughs> um, no, so the action was interesting. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> it was 70% worth it. The, the last... Um, 30% of the film really let it down. Um, but for a Liam Neeson sort of um, action thriller, it's it's not too bad. And when cinemas were reopened, I'm encouraging people to get to cinemas. If Honest Thief is um, still playing, go and see if it's interesting. <laughs> Rand, what's in the number five, please? Is it interesting? <laughs> I don't think so, because I've never heard of it. And um, this is two by two, Overboard. So this is actually a kids' film. Um, it's uh, a sequel to uh, another film. Um, what, neither we've not we've not seen either of them. We w- I think we I said I was going to go and see this um, in the cinema, but chaos ensued as as we know, um, and I never got round to seeing it. So you know, you also said you were going to see Elfkins. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> Elfkins? Did I say that? Maybe I did. You did. Yes. I think I did. You did. Yeah. Well, anyway, in the um, number four, we have A Christmas Carol. And uh, who doesn't love A Christmas Carol? Yeah. Anyone? Anyone? I, again, I don't know if I've ever seen some sort of version of The Christmas Carol. <laughs> oh. You must have seen A Muppet's Christmas Carol. Yeah. No. What? I'm buying you that on DVD. It's an absolute <laughs> classic. And it's Kermit a masterpiece. the Frog deserves an Oscar. No, I think Michael Caine <laughs> de- deserves an Oscar. Just, just the way he wears his scarf, I enjoy that. <laughs> interesting <laughs> yes interesting uh david number three uh in a number three is a film that i must confess i haven't heard of we're making ourselves look terribly uneducated again on this week's episode uh wolf walkers well the good um, thing here david is i have heard of it oh please do tell i i believe now i might make myself look like a fool here but it's certainly an animation I believe it's an Irish animation. Um, and this is actually playing in uh, a local cinema to me. Um, well, it should be anyway. Um, in uh, in St Albans. It, well, it, it might have already been played. Um, uh, but it is coming to Apple TV Plus on December the 11th, um, which is really great off the top of my head that I know that. Um, so if you have Disney Plus, this is one to watch for the kids. Um, it's about, uh, I'm going to look this up now just in case and find a synopsis just so the listeners can hear. In a time of superstition and magic, when wolves are seen as demonic and nature 
and evil to be tamed, a young apprentice hunter, Robin, comes to Ireland with her father to wipe out the last pack. But when Robin saves a wild native girl, uh, their friendship leads to her discover her to discover the world of the wolf whalers and transform her into the very thing her father is tasked to destroy. That actually sounds pretty cool. I just Googled it. The animation looks amazing. (laughs) Yeah, the animation is supposed to be really, really good. Um, This was supposed to be playing at the Odyssey. It might have already happened. Um, But I know it is playing at uh, a few different sort of independent cinemas. Um, It is playing at Odeon's as well. It's going to be probably one of the bigger kids films this Christmas, actually. Um, But it was showing at the Odyssey at one point or another. If if you go to the um, odysseypictures.com, code at uk i believe the web address is uh, you should be able to find some listings on there for their december and uh coming up soon as well their january listings which is really cool because i really want to go um nice. yeah so what is in at number two anyone david home alone um again a bit of a classic um i'm i'm i'm, I'm assuming it's the original home alone it is yes um, so I mean, what a what a great film! Um, I, I off the top of my head, I don't know how many they made about four hundred. Um, so maybe they <laughs> they sort of started to run out of ideas. But no, Home Alone's that sort of get your family together, have a good laugh. Um, and actually, the last time I watched Home Alone, I was Home Alone. Uh, oh, the irony! <laughs> ah. <laughs> the the last time I watched Home Alone was actually last weekend, and uh, oh wow, yeah, I introduced it to Charis because she'd never watched it before, and what? I think she enjoyed it. I think wow. she did. But for a film club that I do on Saturday evenings, we are actually watching Home Alone two. So I wanted to bring her up to speed with Home Alone one to watch the greatest Home Alone film, which is Home Alone two: Lost in New York. No, yeah. no, 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 no. What? Home Alone 1 is way better. No, but Home Alone 2 yes. has Donald Trump in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... Stop going on about bloody Donald Trump. <laughs> Make Home Alone great again. <laughs> Love it. No, Home Home Alone 2 for me is is definitely a, a much better Home Alone film. 100%. But okay, it doesn't really matter because we're not reviewing it. So I would like to know though, Rand, what is in at number one? Number one is personally my favourite Christmas film of all time, and that is Elf. Oh, can you quote anything from it? Um, Santa! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was really on the spot. There are some very quotable things from that film, and I really can't remember myself, so I thought if I put you on the spot, you might remember a very quotable quote from Elf. But no, a great, great, great film. Um, I personally adore the director of this film who is john favreau yeah. of course um john favreau being the person who brought us the marvel cinematic universe well the mm-hmm. first marvel cinematic universe film in iron man um and he's also brought us the mandalorian which yeah. if you haven't watched the mandalorian on disney plus it's incredible um i've just finished season one of of the mandalorian and i'm excited to pick up season two um but john favreau um, directs Will Farrow, Will Farrow, Will Ferrell, Farrell. Oh, I can't say names tonight. <laughs> what is going on? But you know who I'm talking about. Uh, and Zoe Deschanel in what can only be described as um, a grown man dressed as an elf, pretending to acting to be an elf, who is really an elf, um, going to meet his actual father for the first time in New York City, and then falling in love with um, an equally elfish kind of woman, but she's not. I mean, this is a great synopsis, isn't it? 
this is this is sensational. It's selling you the picture. Um, I, this, is, I, this is how I imagine John Favreau pitching this to the studio. Um, elf man thing goes to find uh, his dad in New York, falls in love with an equally elvish kind of looking woman. There you go, sorted. And he got the budget sold. Of Thirty-three sold. million dollars. Um, picture. Yeah, go and make. Run, run VT. Uh, and speaking of watch, maybe we should run the uh, the the countdown music so that David can do it from ten to one, please. Quick. Yes, I can. Uh, I have lost the script. Uh, no, I haven't. I have got it. Um, in at number ten, we have Catherine Jenkins' Christmas Spectacular. Nine, Die Hard. Eight, The Grinch. Seven, Pixie. Six, Honest Thief. Five, Two by Two, Overboard. Four. A Christmas Carol, three Wolf Walkers, two Home Alone, and number one. It was fantastically sold to you by the wonderful Mr. Craig Fields. It is Elf. So our first review on week 49 is Mank. This is set in 1930s Hollywood and is re-evaluated through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz uh, as he races to finish the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Uh, without further ado, let's listen to a clip from this movie. It's actually a trailer, isn't it, David? It is. It's, a, it's the first one minute 40 of the trailer. Let's hope it is. Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Do come in. At this rate, you will never finish. You said 90 days. Well, said 60. I'm doing the best I can. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a court jester. What I want to know is what you think of it. It's a bit of a jumble, a collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old sock. Him, I get. But what did Marion ever do to deserve it's this? It's not her. Not all characters are headliners. Some are secondary. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can. Especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction, eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. 
I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. <laughs> Why Hurst? Outside his own blonde Betty Boop, you're always his favorite dinner partner. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? <laughs> so that was a trailer clip that you just listened to from Mank. Now, this film is available on Netflix. And uh, David, I believe you talked about this movie on your first episode of Road to the Oscars with Max Joseph. Just give us a brief insight as to what you discussed with Max about the film. So um, this is obviously directed by David Fincher, uh, stars Gary Oldman, uh, Amanda Seyfried and Lily Collins, but to name a few. And basically we were discussing its chances of winning Best Picture. Um, It's currently second favourite with the bookmakers at a price of around six to one. Um, And cinephiles and critics and film enthusiasts and obviously lovers of Citizen Kane have been so, so excited for the release of this particular piece of work from Fincher. Um, when I recorded Road to the Oscars, I hadn't actually seen Mank. Um, you'll be pleased to know as we're, <laughs> we're reviewing it, I now have seen it. I've actually seen it twice and I also revisited Citizen Kane. Um, and I cannot wait to dive into a review here and let you know what this film's like, the performances, its Oscar chances, um, because I'm a lot more educated and have a lot more knowledge than I did when we went into Road to the Oscars. But even before Road to the Oscars and before I saw this film, this was always going to be a major, major contender in award season. Awesome insight there, David. Um, so this is David Fincher's 11th film um, and it is, first of all, we should say it's black and white. Um, mm. It's a picture of the golden age Hollywood. Um, it's It marks his return or David Fincher's return to features um, following his acclaimed FBI crime series, Mindhunter. I don't know if any of you guys have seen that at all. Yeah, I've seen it. Really good. So, yeah. So David Fincher has re-collaborated with some people that he worked on Mindhunter with. Now, obviously Mindhunter was funded by Netflix and after Netflix um, gave him Mindhunter and obviously did really well with that, they've gone, right, what do you want to make next? So at the back of David Mm. Fincher's mind is this script that was written by his father, Jack Fincher, who sadly passed away um, quite a few years ago, I believe. Um, But it was always something that he tried to get made, but... When you are a director that's not done so many different versatile things um, at at the time after it was written, um, people aren't going to take that chance on you. But as David Fincher's gone through his career of making lots of different films from The Social Network, um, you know, to to Mindhunter as well, these, these different qualities of styles of film um netflix wanted to take that chance on this film and this is one that i think david has really put some passion into because of the collaboration between screenwriter which is also his dad and himself um and their love for citizen kane now um in some notes that i've read about this um David Fincher and his dad really shared a real passion for Citizen Kane. Um, It was a film that David Fincher watched at school, but it was recommended by his dad um, to watch. 
as part of like his sort of education in in watching films and i think that what the film is trying to do isn't trying to talk about the the fact that Orson Welles took a credit for writing the film even though he didn't that isn't what this film is about and i think that's exactly what david fincher is trying not to talk about how well they succeed at that is another question and one that i will pose to ranjit that is a good question um first of all i just wanted to say that this i thought this film was incredible and like you said it ticks off all the oscar boxes um, I think there's a very good chance it could run away with the the big one on Oscar night because, um, you know, the Oscar voters love things about old Hollywood and just Hollywood in general. And, um, you know, that's why La La Land did so well and films of that sort of nature do well. So, yeah, yeah this ticks off all those boxes. Um, Gary Oldman is incredible, as usual, in this film. I love the production design. I love how the whole aesthetic, it feels like you're watching something that was made in the 30s. It has those um, those sort of film reel bubbles that appear in the corners every now and then. And even the sound design is so authentic to the time that it's representing. 100%. Um, and the score by Trent Reznor and Askers Ross, again, uh, they're, they're always working with Fincher and they always uh, pull out with uh, some great stuff. Um. And yeah, I think if you're a film historian, like you mentioned, David, like if you're really um, well versed in that world, you're going to pick up on a lot of things that um, I personally m- might miss, like a lot of very intricate details and small Easter eggs and uh, character names and locations and stuff. So I think it's worth like a, a second rewatch as well. So you don't, because there's a lot going on, you you might miss a lot of it. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's a great film. It's It's still has a very relevant and um, important message to the way the um, news and stuff is represented today. There's a whole sort of little bit about um, uh, fake news and stuff like that and how influential it is on the general public. Um, And, you know, that's something that's just a huge problem and that's uh, happened in our internet age. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's timely, yet it still represents... The, the, the time period in, it wants to represent really well. And you're right, David, it's, the film isn't about um, Orson Welles, uh, sorry, Craig, um, right. isn't about... We're both bored. Um, <laughs> isn't <laughs> about Orson Welles um, taking credit for Citizen Kane. It's just about this, um, this writer's sort of... Um, he's just it's sort of like destroying himself and he's not... He's not... You know, he's not he's struggling to get better and he's just in this really destructive sort of relationship with his work and with his life and the people around him. And it's just incredible. Like, it's just, I love it. Like I've said this before in the show many times, but I love it when a film highlights like a certain uh, time period or real life people that you want to look into afterwards and you learn more about it. And that's what this film has done. Um, I've seen Citizen Kane as well, but it was a while ago. So now this film also wants me to rewatch Citizen Citizen Kane and see if I can pick up on anything uh, differently. Um, but yeah, this, this film is just absolutely great. Uh, it's like I said, I, I would not be surprised if this goes home with uh, Best Picture. But um, David, what about you? Yeah, so I mean, I went into this film with mixed 
feelings and mixed expectations for those of you who've listened to road to the oscars i compared this film to roma in the sense that i thought it was going to be visually stunning i thought that it was going to be critically acclaimed but was it going to leave the audience feeling sort of cold and detached as i felt with roma i I know other people have felt like that as well and ultimately would it struggle at the academy awards that comparison um the fabulous max joseph said to me you know that comparison is wrong um and he was right. Having watched Mank twice now, um, I can say that it's a very, very different film um, to Roma. And the reason, there's many reasons why it's different. But firstly, it, the pace of this film. Um, I think the pace of this film is absolutely brilliant. Um, it starts really quickly and it just rattles off. And what I wasn't expecting from this film is the humour. Um, there's lots of humour in this film yeah. and it's sharp witted and it's quick and Gary Oldman gives this really, well, intoxicated performance almost. I mean, that fit, that is his character, who's obviously a, a, an active alcoholic. Yeah, I was going to um, say, I was going to say that it almost feels grounded, though, like it's a normality, like he, he, he manages to portray something that isn't really normal. Mm. But it is, but but in this world where he is like this, it is a normality, isn't it? it it's, yeah. it's a very fine, fine performance in that sense. There's this, it's, it's razor sharp, but it's yeah, it's it's strange, isn't it? It's like yeah, it's fine, but it's not. Yeah, um, I will. I do want to touch actually upon its portrayal of addiction, um, but I will do that a little bit later. Um, but th- that's where it's different to Roma. It's got humour. It's got a really gr- great pace. Um, like Roma, um, which was visually stunning, even though I didn't enjoy it, this film is just gorgeous on the eye. Like, it captures the era so well. Um, and the production design is just to die for. Um, and and the film with films like this, I always worry that um, it's obviously going to be loved by critics and fans of Citizen Kane. But is your average film goer going to enjoy this film? Well, I think they will because it sets the scene really well. Like the film hits you straight away and and, and it captivates you. Um, it is slightly jumbled in the sense that there are jumps in time and there's a lot of flashbacks, but that actually plays homage to Citizen Kane, um, which obviously jumps around in time. And even um, when Herman Mankiewicz writes his first draft, um, one of the people overseeing the draft says to him that it's a terrible jumbled mess. And he says a little bit like my mind. And one of the reasons that Citizen Kane was so revolutionary was that it was jumping around in time, you know, before Christopher, the Nolan was around um, those flash forwards, flashbacks, and um, it, the the era is captured beautifully. It's got a great soundtrack. Um, one of the things that really impressed me, and I'd love to hear what you guys think about this, was the screenplay. Um, I thought the screenplay was just so dense and so compact. Like I've 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 never seen a film that seems to have so much words so quickly yeah like it, there's there's a line and then there's another line and there's another line and you've got scenes with five or six characters and they're all punching out these um these lines really really quickly and bouncing off each other and it doesn't feel like a film it feels like someone has taken a camera into a 19 1930s hollywood studio and is just following this person around it almost yeah. feels like a biopic you know what i 
I really like that you said that because I want to compare this a little bit to the to the screenplay or the or the dialogue in in the Trial of Chicago Seven because that was really quick and really sharp and really poignant, yeah. but it felt fake in a way that it like. But I don't know, like they were, they've been practicing reading this script for ages and it just didn't feel like it was a natural flow of words coming out of their mouths. But in this, even though it was quite convoluted and complicated in terms of what they're talking about and you had to really think to keep up with what they're saying, it felt natural. It was the delivery of what they were saying. It felt like they were genuinely thinking on the spot about what they were saying and it was coming out of their mouths and it wasn't, they weren't reading something. Um I, I just think the trial of Chicago Seven was Chevron Seven that was very <laughs> pristine in that sense, and um, I can't remember what it was that we exactly said about that um, in that sense. But it it genuinely, yeah, I I have to make that comparison of, of two recent films and two films that were. There's a buzz for Oscars there. I don't think yeah. Trial of Chicago Seven is going to be in there. I, I I can't remember if you talked about that, David, or not. But either way, yeah, we did. Yeah, either way, I'm, I'm, I think this is the superior film, especially in dialogue. But going back a little bit to what you were saying about paying the homage to um, Citizen Kane, in one instance, when you're talking about the flashbacks, they pay homage in the cinematography. So, to, uh, one yeah. of the ways of capturing that flashback is by this um, fade in, uh, I suppose, in light and. That was done by practicals. So the lighting was literally dimmed like they did originally in Citizen Kane. Yeah. Uh, and um, I thought that was a really unique way of of, of paying homage, but also capturing uh, the way of doing the flashbacks. Um, but another cinematography technique, um, I might, I, I should talk about a little bit about who the director of photography was, and that was Eric Measuresmith. Um, he also worked with David Fincher on both seasons of, of Mindhunter. Um they, they employed a technique that they did on Citizen Kane, um, which was this deep focus that they do, which is uh, a really unique way of capturing everything in the foreground, everything in the background in focus. And they did this a lot in Mank, which I, I found to be really, really, really cool because there's no pulling of focus there's no you know it shows the entire scene and what's happening and the impact of people's expressions so they might be standing at a door and somebody sitting further away from that and everything everything's in focus and there's no need to pull focus and i think there's a scene in citizen kane where you compare this to david correct me if i'm wrong here there's a scene where um uh the young charles foster um kane is seen through the window playing in the snow and and in the background or that's in the background whilst um uh, his mother is signing some documents and both of those things are happening simultaneously but they're in focus both of them and it really captures and adds to the emotion of this of the scene or 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 the the drama of the scene um and they did that a lot in mank and i thought that was a really really good uh, technique but also a way of exploring that that um the homage, but also playing with our, our emotions in in terms of cinematography and lighting. So it was really cool to see that employed there. Um, yeah, I mean, aesthetically as well. Let's talk about the black and white. Yeah, and also the sound design. We'll go on to the sound design in a second. But black and white filming in black and white. What do we think? Was this a good choice? Sensational choice. Yeah, 
I feel like you forget it's black and white almost maybe like five, ten minutes in. It just feels so organic and just, you know, the story is so engaging and engrossing anyway. And like you said, the screenplay and what the characters are saying just immediately captures your attention. So yeah. for me personally, I just, you know, I forgot that it was black and white. It just felt so organic. Yeah, it... I think what they've done is really tried to stick to like these 1930s, 1940s techniques of filmmaking. But whilst trying not to be restricted by that, they've used um, technology to their advantage. So uh, Red, which are a camera manufacturer, I don't know if you guys have heard of them, but if you have, Red have a camera called the Monstro 8K Monochrome, which is basically <laughs> a sensor in the camera captures captures the scene in pure black and white how it's intended to be seen most filmmakers this day and age will shoot in color and convert in black and white in post-production and i believe um this is something that actually happened not digitally in the 1930s but they would shoot on color film and convert it to black and white film afterwards instead of shooting to black and white i might be wrong on that but i'm pretty sure i've read that somewhere a long time ago but you know I mean, uh, let me just have a look here. I'm pretty sure black and white films are filmed in color, then converted. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Just checking there. I just wanted to double check that my, my knowledge is correct. But yeah, so aesthetically, straight off the bat, we've got this monstrous 8K picture being shot, which is double the resolution that, you know, you'd normally see in a cinema projector, perhaps, unless it's like IMAX. Um, So, you know, 8K is huge. They're working with some amazing lenses as well. They've got the Leica uh, lenses in there as well. And and they've opted for um, an aspect ratio that wasn't what Citizen Kane had, which was the 133 to 1 aspect ratio, but they've gone for a 2.2 to one aspect ratio, which David Fincher is quoted as saying, it's as squat as you want to see something in the theatre and as wide as you want to see on a display. So this is obviously something he's considered when it's being put out onto Netflix. So when you're sitting at home, you're not going to want to see an aspect ratio that's so restricted in in the, in the black bars on the top. You want to see the whole picture, don't yeah. you? So despite that, they've met, in the middle there and they've gone for that cinematic aspect ratio but they've also gone for one that's not going to constrict when you watch it on your tv at home because ultimately that's where it's being watched unfortunately and i say unfortunately because it is a bit unfortunate isn't it yeah i I find that quite interesting like a film about the history of cinema and like we said earlier one of the greatest if not the greatest film ever made and we're watching it at home <laughs> on Netflix. It's quite, it's quite surreal and quite interesting at how the times have changed. It is. It is. This is being played at the Odyssey in St Albans. I know I keep raving about it. There are going to be cinemas that are showing this, as David has has, has said numerous times, especially in Road to the Oscars. This is up for an Oscar somewhere. Yeah. Um, best picture, it should be. Various other Oscars should come. Um, you know, I mean, the sound and score as well, like we've talked about the score a little bit, but actually the techniques of the sound, I think they should win an award for this because the the, the way of getting an authentic 1930s or 1940s filmmaking sort of sound design in Mank, like they, they, they chose to avoid using surround sound like they would normally do, like the 5.1 surround sound that you get in cinemas and at home these days. 
they've gone to just a, a single a single channel of audio so like a, a basically mono which is how you get that that sound but not not only that the way it's EQ'd and the way that it's been taking the highs out of the frequency and the lows out of the frequency to get that really authentic, like 1930 sound just adds so much more to the picture. I think if you took that away and you had like the pristine audio that you have these days um, for, for movies, I think this wouldn't, this wouldn't be half as good. Honestly, I think the sound makes up so much for it. And because that dialogue is the way it is, it has to sound so authentic like that because it puts you in the era. You have to be put in that era. You've got the black and white. You've got the costume and the and um, the production design. The audio has to match what you're seeing almost. And if you closed your eyes, you would have thought it's a 1930s picture that you're listening to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that's that is a pure credit to that. Honestly, I, I and I. I would be surprised if they didn't win an Oscar simply on the back of that for for sound. Is that something you think, David, might actually happen? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of Oscars, I will talk a bit more about that um, on Road to the Oscars, but I will mention its chances on a number of categories on, on this episode. Um, regular listeners and Oscars um, enthusiasts will know that there used to be two sound categories of the Oscars, sound mixing and sound editing. Um, now I'm not going to try and explain the difference between the two because people will probably fall asleep, but they have now been scrapped and it's just one sound category. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure what that category is called, but this is getting nominated in the sound category. 100%. Craig has just outlined why much better than I could. The sound of this was gorgeous and authentic and really you want to be seeing and hearing. You want them to be, the same thing they you know that the sound and the and the visuals are singing off the same hinge sheet here um and it works really well so it's definitely going to get an, an oscar nod in the sound category 100 percent. i would have said that singing off the same score but all right <laughs> um sorry <laughs> it's okay um i mean we've had a little chat there about the technical aspects um unless anyone else wanted to say more about the technical aspects i'd love to talk about the performances in here yeah, I think that's a really good thing yeah. to do. I think we could round it off with the performances. I don't know about you guys, but is that something we should, do you think we should do? Yeah, we should We should definitely mention the performances. Yeah, who, who wants to go first? I think since you wanted to, you can go first. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's a number of brilliant performances in here. Um, I think... Amanda Seyfried uh, is brilliantly cast. People may know her from a variety of stuff, but for some reason I best know her for her work in Mamma Mia. Um, I don't know why. Um, (laughs) She's been in many, many more things than that. Um, Lily Collins is in there as well. um, And a a few others that I'll mention, but I did want to um, talk about Gary Oldman. Um, For me, I'm going to just go straight to the point here. And I I think this is a career best from him. Um, and I say that in light of the fact that three years ago he won an Oscar for his portrayal of Winston Churchill. And I would say that if it was if that film hadn't have been made and he hadn't have won the Oscar for playing Sir Winston Churchill, you know, put a fork in it, it's done. It's over. He's <laughs> winning in this category. Let me tell you that now. Um but because he won a few years ago and there's there's so many other potential um brilliant performances in this lead acting category. Um, I'm not convinced he's going to win an Oscar, but I think he's definitely going to be nominated. Um, 
one of the things that really stands out for me in his performance is not just the charm and the wit and the fluency that he performs with, but it's the drunken acting. Now, people might think it's not that hard to to, to act drunk. Trust me. Um, I know we've got some actors that listen to this podcast. Acting drunk and doing it well is incredibly hard. I'm not talking about the soap opera acting where you stumble around and slur your words and bump into stuff, which he does do. I'm talking about well-balanced drunken acting where you... I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Gary Oldman was on the source during this film. Like, that's how good his acting was. Um, (laughs) And it's a very, very difficult thing to get right. Quite often you'll see people pretend to be drunk uh, in films and and it just doesn't work. Um, this really does work for me. Um, and I just wanted to touch upon his portrayal of an alcoholic. I think it's um, there are moments where he his he almost glorifies his drinking and we see the highs of his drinking and uh, as a recovering addict myself you know addiction doesn't start with lows it ends with lows but it does start with those highs and we see those but we also see those crashing lows and we see the impact that alcoholism is having on his ability to remember certain things and his ability to have relationships and his ability to do his job and his ability to sustain a a happy marriage. And I just think the portrayal of alcoholism in this is really well balanced. And the way Gary Oldman portrays an alcoholic with the highs of alcoholism, the lows of alcoholism, um, I, I thought his performance was for me, it's one of the best performances of the year. I think he'll be nominated. I don't think he'll win because he had that win a few years ago. But if he was to win, I wouldn't be worried at all. I'd be delighted. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. That, I, uh, Gary Oldman's performance in this is, as you said, it's superb. Um, I think one of the reasons that he's been cast here is that he's just capable of displaying so many levels of human emotion um so like at, like at his best he's just so varied and like just the self-destruction like that he portrays on screen that he's able to like show it but cover it up at the same time which is just so unique in terms of like like you see him self-destructing yeah. At the same time, like yeah. he's keeping it together, and and you don't realize that he's a character here. Like he he just feels real and authentic, yeah. and and it's just gracefully done by Gary Oldman. But it's Herman Mankiewicz that I see on screen here. Like I don't see Gary Oldman because he's so capable of changing the way that he is. Like every performance is a different person, and that's that's incredible when you when you look at that. Ranch, did you want to comment on Gary Oldman? I mean, I think you both have summed up really well, but that's it, isn't it? It's just it's the, the genius of Gary Oldman is that he's just such a chameleon and he can just transform himself into so many roles and you forget you're watching Gary Oldman. It's just it's just incredible. Like it's, I don't know a lot of actors that can, can sort of transform in that same way. Yeah. Like, I love that word chameleon because that is exactly what he is. That like mm-hmm. he he just changes himself every single time. Um, you've mentioned Lily Collins already. 
I thought she had a fine performance. Um, there's Tuppence Middleton, who plays Sarah Mankiewicz, um, referred in the film uh, as poor Sarah um, by by his friends and colleagues. <laughs> um, I, I, she didn't have much to do in the film, but I think what she did have, she managed to like really show what it was like to be a screenwriter's wife in that time. Mm. Like with all the gambling, the drinking with with his her husband, and then like him not being around quite so much. It, she, you know, she really did put up with him, and I think she really, like, you know, I don't know. I just think it was a fine performance. We've, yeah. we've seen Tubman's Middleton in a number of things, and I think she's a really great, great actress. And I'm looking forward to seeing some more stuff from her. Um, anybody else that really stands out for you? Like, I, I Tom Burke, you know, he yeah. he's not in the film an awful lot, but even down the phone talking yeah. as awesome wells like he manages to convey the this character this massive yeah, yeah like it's so so characteristic of the 1930s in this this like he's just so dominant and mm. he really is confident in what he's doing and i just like like even though he's not in most of the film his presence looms over the entire film um, a little bit of background for those who who don't know. Orson Welles was given complete creative control in making a movie off the back of sort of coming from radio, like he was doing a lot of radio and theatre stuff in New York. And RKO Pictures offered him this just this deal that was just incredible. And um, so they would basically finance his first film and give him complete creative control, um, including like anybody that he wanted to collaborate with. And he chose Mankiewicz to, to write this film. And there's a number of essays saying that he didn't deserve the co-writer on this because he didn't write it because, and this is the whole premise of the film in that sense, but it's not. Um, but Orson Welles looms completely over the film because of this, this pressure to get this script finished and how he's going to find the creativeness and the ideas behind it. And that's really what it's about. But, but just the way they recreated this figure in time, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Orson Welles did the, um, radio performance of, um, um, war of the world, war of the world. That's it. Raj. And people listened to this radio show and <laughs> believed it was real that yeah. aliens were invading now that's this is the man who who did that and then he came, and then then for his first film was citizen kane so this pressure to portray him on screen in this way tom burke has done a great job even though he's not in it as much like i said like when he is in it wow like yeah what performance what did you guys yeah. think david yeah, I totally agree. Like you said, Orson Welles is just held in such high esteem in Hollywood. And I thought Tom Burke's performance was brilliant. Like like you said, you've summed it up. His presence vo- vocally um, I, I and the way he looked as well, they did a great job there. But his vocals, I was convinced that this was Orson Welles. Um, it was it was brilliant. Um, I just wanted to touch briefly upon Charles Dance as well, who plays William Randolph Hearst. Um, I thought he gave uh, a really good performance, um, a really cold and icy portrayal of William Randolph Hearst, and um, one particular scene where he talks about an organ grinder's monkey. Um, I just thought the way he delivered that scene was really 
powerful and mm. it really stuck with me. I th- to be fair, I don't think anyone puts in a bad performance. No. Um, and it's 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 different to um, Darkest Hour because Darkest Hour was in many ways a bit of a flawed film and it was just the Gary Oldman show. Like he completely stole that film and, 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 and obviously won the Academy Award. This has lots of, from Amanda Seyfried and Lily Collins and Tom Burke, Tuppence Middleton, Charles Dance. Um, there's loads of good, solid supporting performances that just make this a really well-rounded film. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else anybody wants to add now before we do delve into the questions? Um, Just very, very briefly, um, in terms of its Oscars chances, um, I think it's a huge shout to it's it's nominated it's getting nominated 100 slam dunk nomination but i think it's got a huge chance of winning best picture for all the reasons we've outlined but i i, I made a list i think it can get nominated for original screenplay director production design sound costume editing cinematography possibly one or two nominations in the acting categories the soundtrack like that's i think nine or ten oscars potentially like this is building a resume. Um, I may be wrong, but that is a resume for a best picture win. So I think at the moment from everything I've seen, obviously Nomadland, I haven't seen, so I can't comment, but at the moment, this is the film to beat for best picture. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So we're going to go around and ask the questions unless Ranjit, did you want to add one last thing? No, I'm ready to answer. Okay. So Ranjit, we'll start with you. Mank, is it worth it? Mank. Is worth it. Simple as simple answer. <laughs> David Mank, is it worth it? For all the reasons we've outlined, Mank is a must-see film. Um, I really recommend watching Citizen Kane first and then watching Mank. I think both of them back to back. You'll feel like a film critic afterwards, and you'll be um, you'll be refreshed and. You know, it'll give you a passion for old school movies. Uh, I'm excited about this film, and you should be too. Mank, one hundred percent worth it. And for me, Mank, Mank is 100% worth it. David, like you said, like all the reasons we outlined, it, it is totally worth watching. Um, it's a beautiful homage to the golden age. It's also uh, a really great insight into the way uh, Citizen Kane was made. Um, I haven't seen Citizen Kane. That is definitely something that I need to be watching to really understand the yeah. true nature of what this film is about. Um, something that I have further to add about this film, it's an email from Daryl. Um, he says, Hi guys, as interest in next April's Oscars begins to build, I managed to see one of the favourites on Netflix, David Fincher's Mank. Really good with a potential Oscar winning performance by Gary Oldman, which just has to be seen, although it can be watched in its own right, given that it is about the writing of the film Citizen Kane, an absolute classic and one of my all time favourite films. I feel the old film needs to be watched first. The similarities and well-worked links to the plot of Citizen Kane ensure the two films complement each other. It really does feel like it was made in the 1940s. Tom Burke even sounds like Orson Welles. Loved the black and white filming and the old style sets and backgrounds. It is visually stunning. It deserves to gather many awards. The content will be loved by those who were brought up on the old style Hollywood films, will thrill film buffs and remind the Academy of Hollywood in its prime. But today's younger film goer may not be so infused. 
A few weeks ago, I emailed you a positive review about Netflix's The Trial of a Chicago 7, but said it was not a likely best picture. Mank is better. It merits Oscars and has to be in with a decent chance of best film. It would be a worthy winner. If there is a better made film this year, I look forward to seeing it. Daryl, I think that's a great email, and I really think it yeah. sums everything up that we basically said in about an hour. But <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I think I think this has um, been a long review, but one that we wasn't completely necessary. And um, and as all three of us said, Mank is worth it. Yes, that's right. It's now time for the news, and the news is going to be brought to us by the fantastic Ranjit Nanran. Ranjit, what's going on? Thank you so much, David. And uh, yeah, some pretty significant, maybe even industry-changing news that I've got for you guys. I'm sure you've both heard, but HBO Max and Warner Brothers have made a, a huge, a huge change to the way the industry will run, probably forever, like you know the rest of our lifetimes so Mm. i'll read a little bit of the press statement that they released um following the one month hbo max access period domestically each film would leave the platform and continue through actually in the us and international territories with all customary distribution windows applying to the title so for next year hbo max will have the whole of warner brothers slate out on their platform for one month the same day as it comes out in cinemas across wow. the world. And then after that month, it's gone off the platform, but it carries on playing in cinemas. But here's the catch. Well, well it's not more catch because it's better than what Disney offered. It's free. It's no, there isn't a additional cost what you'd be paying monthly like Disney yeah. did with Mulan. So Disney offered, I think, $30 and over here it was like £20 yeah. um, extra to what you're paying monthly. Mm. But these films, and I'll give you the list of films now, these films will be free, will, will just be an addition to the platform at no ec- extra cost to the uh, consumer. Um, just quickly, some of the films, the notable films they have are Denzel Washington's The Little Things, Judas and the Black Messiah, Tom and Jerry, Godzilla vs. Kong, Mortal Kombat, Those Who Wish Me Dead, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, In the Heights, Space Jam, New Legacy, The Suicide Squad, Malif- mal- malignant, otherwise. Dune, <laughs> The Many Saints Dune. of Newark. Yep, and Matrix Four. Well, these are some pretty heavy uh, titles, really. These are these are significant players in the cinematic industry. Yeah. Um. So, what does this mean for the UK, though? Is there anything anything there for that? Or well, I was looking up on this again yesterday, and it looks like HBO Max are planning to. Uh, be in Europe by the end of 2021 but right. that's still is still very confusing because over here the HBO uh, the rights and stuff lie with Sky so how we don't know how it'll work like will it go to Sky will it go to uh, Now TV which is Sky's uh, streaming service and if that's the case that's a real shame because that is an awful streaming service in terms of usability and just yes and no yes and no so sky slash now tv they haven't really innovated their apple tv app 
um, the Apple TV app sucks. How do yeah. you how do you watch? Now I TV? use it on my PlayStation now. It's, and it it's sucks on terrible. there as well. It's terrible. Yeah. So there are some there are better interfaces um, available for Now TV. I think right. the, the the web version is is pretty decent. Um, but so if you're watching it on a laptop, it's nice. The GUI, the graphical user interface, is is yeah. nice. <laughs> but but um, yeah, no, you're right though. It is a shame. Uh, it does suck on the Apple TV. Like, it doesn't have some of the, like Netflix where it will continue on to the next episode. Yeah. It doesn't have that on Now no. TV at all. That sucks. No, it's it, very far it behind. Lose, yeah, it loses. It doesn't yeah. have pre- what you've been previously watching. doesn't yeah. recommend you anything. It doesn't have... It's just this is the content. It's on there. Try and find it. Sort yeah, of exactly. Try and find it is perfect. Is a perfect way to describe it. Um and it doesn't. It also doesn't even uh, stream in 4K and um, like full high high definition. Like I now, mean, this is where the online web browser version I think does. Right. Okay. Um. So I had a real urge to watch Harry Potter in bed, and yeah. I didn't own them, <laughs> and uh, I had a free trial for Now TV, so I had my laptop, and I def- I'm pretty sure it was um. Uh, a, a better than HD version um, okay. that was available to stream. I'm going to have to clarify that and double check yeah, now. Because that's, that's still not good if you, if it's only on your laptop. I mean, you want the full 4K or HD version on your TV, really. Yeah, and I think I think that might be where Sky Cinema actually comes in. So if you have a Sky, Q, is it Sky Q still? Is that is that yeah, a thing I think still? So. Yeah. So Sky Q boxes were obviously the the latest or the greatest version of Sky TV that you can get, which has 4k um out of the box so if you wanted to watch a uhd ultra high definition channel that was the only way of doing it through sky Mm. essentially right okay um now tv it might have that option but if it doesn't it's because they want you to sign up to sky cinema i think for a Mm, sky q box that sort of thing but i think Industry-wise, um, back to the actual HBO news here. Yeah, this is devastating. I think for the, for for, for theatres um, that want to 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 get you know ahead of the game or try and make some profits. People are going out less and less. This is and one more reason for them not to go to the cinema, mm. and that makes me a little bit sick to my core, really. Yeah, David, what do you what do you think about this news? Uh, well, it's obviously major news, and like Craig said, as a as a cinema goer, as a podcast that revolves around going to the cinema, it it is worrying. Um, I mean, many people will absolutely love this news. Some of the films that you're on there, you, you know, you said about Dune and Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a film, by the way, that I'm really looking forward to. We spoke about it on Road to the Oscars. So excited yeah. for that. Mm. Um, big films like this going straight to HBMO. And, and then, like you said, they're there for a month whilst being in the cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most films, though, don't actually stay in the cinema longer than a month. Yeah. Unless it's a really, really big film. Yeah. So yeah. maybe Judas and the Black Messiah isn't going to be in the cinema longer than a month. Yeah. It will be basically on streaming services maybe for a month on HBO Max and in the cinema for a month. That might take a big hit in terms of the revenue it makes in the cinema. Yeah, it's bound to. 
So is this this a long-term thing? They've said said it's early for next year, but I I don't think so. Because if you think about it, this is going to get... This will get Disney Plus level um, uh, in in terms of uh, subscribers. Mm. People are going to flock to HBO Max straight away with this brilliant deal that they're they're getting. And then if you take it away from them, that doesn't make sense business-wise. Like If you take this away from them in 2022 and there's nothing there's no reason for them to stick to the platform no i really don't see this as being as as being a one-year plan (laughs) i i think this is i I just think this is the way forward i think this was gonna happen sooner or later and covid has just sped it up it has it has it has uh, have it have any cinemas come back uh, against this, has there been any statements? Because obviously, the last time this pretty much happened or went yeah. to happen with Soul, not Soul, um, it was um, the 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 uh, trolls, trolls, trolls. That was when it kicked it off, didn't it? And that was who? What, <laughs> um, what distributor was that? That's that was Universal. Universal, wasn't it? Yeah. So when that happened, the cinemas instantly were like boycott. No, we're yeah. not letting you do this. So I'm I'm curious to know if any cinemas have said anything, if there's been any um, statements. There has. So the Regal um, and Cineworld owner, uh, Mookie Greidinger, has responded to it. Um, and he just, he said, um, Warners will look to reach an agreement about the proper window in terms that that will work for both sides. I understand Cineworld and Warner Brothers are not yet in discussions. Um so you know, I think it's just the like all the theatre chains are just clinging on to a theatrical window, and they're they're, they're going to try and I I don't think they can do anything about this. I don't think they can change it. I think they just have to accept it, um, unfortunately. And I've got quotes from Christopher Nolan, who you know, he went mental, he, didn't he? Yeah, he did not mince his words at all. Um, <laughs> oh, I'd love to, please, please yeah, read this so out. Here's 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 his quote. Some of our industry's biggest filmmakers and most important movie stars went to bed the night before thinking they were working for the greatest movie studio and woke up to find out that they were working with the worst streaming service. That's a quote from Christopher Nolan. Wow, wow. Yeah. Um, He continued, Warner Brothers has an incredible machine for getting a filmmaker's work out everywhere, both in theatres and in home, and they're dismantling it as we speak. They don't understand what they're losing. Their decision makes no economic sense. And even the most casual Wall Street investor can see the difference between disruption and dysfunction. So, you know, what Christopher Nolan is Warner Brothers' poster child. Like, he, every single film of his has been uh, made, has been distributed by Warners. So for him to come out, this is, you know, Warner Brothers must be, uh, you know, not, they probably weren't expecting that big of a, actually, you know, it's, it's Nolan. They probably weren't expecting that big of a backlash. Mm. But maybe they've, they've done the numbers and they know that maybe they, they, they'll be fine without him or something. I don't know. Like, it's just, it's, I mean, you've listed off some huge films. Matrix yeah, will be a yeah. huge pull. Um, Warner Brothers, that, that, maybe they don't need Christopher Nolan. Maybe they don't. I mean, he yeah. is, he is a great director and he's done some amazing films for them. Um, and I'm sure they've made some incredible amounts of money off Christopher Nolan. But yeah, but is this now a make or break for Warner Brothers? Are, you know, this could be the thing that maybe digs them out of a bit of a hole that they have started going down because because of COVID. I mean, I'm sure they're not poor. 
Um, I'll put it that no. way. And I'm sure <laughs> they're not. I'm sure they're not um, yeah. losing money significantly. They're probably just not making as much as last year. Yeah, I mean, look at look at the way Tenet performed. I think in a way, Christopher Nolan might even be to blame for this because he pushed so heavily for Tenet to come out. You know, it wasn't safe in the majority of America where most of the money, most of the box office money comes from. It wasn't safe for this film to be out there. Mm. Maybe we were a little bit a little bit better off here and some other countries were. And it just hasn't performed. It hasn't performed anywhere near as well as his previous films or other blockbuster films of that um, nature. Like, you know, this is in a way like he wanted to be the saviour of cinema. Has he has he done this himself? David, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, I I feel a bit sorry for Christopher Nolan when he was given that pressure of being the saviour of cinema. Like you said, there was a massive debate both in the UK and in America as to whether or not it was safe for cinemas to be open. Um, I think in the UK, the cinemas that I've attended, the safety measures have been brilliant. But there is still a question that... You know, during a pandemic, when we're told to fundamentally stay at home unless we need to go out, is going to the cinema something you really need to be doing? Um, and in terms of what this means for the industry going forward, it's 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 either going to be a massive hit, in my opinion, or a massive flop. I don't think there's going to be any middle ground. I don't think there's going to be any world where people are going, you know, this HBO o- Max um, deal is is okay, we're doing okay. I think they're either going to do really, really well from it or actually you're going to see that people do still want to go to the cinemas. Um, for me, I don't think you can beat the cinematic experience. Like um, yeah. the, 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 the last film we reviewed was Mank, like, Yes, I enjoyed watching it at home and I've got a reasonably decent sound setup. I say reasonably decent, Craig would probably disagree. Um <laughs> <laughs> not at all, it's a nice soundbar. David. It's 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 a decent soundbar, but nothing, you know, to write home about. But I'd love to have seen Mank in the cinema. Yeah. Like when it comes to June, like I want to see June in in the biggest screen possible with surround sound. When it comes to Judas and the Black Messiah, I want to be going to the cinema. You know, this isn't just about the cinema. This is a this is about the cinema industry in general and we're not just talking about the actors the directors the people who work on films we're talking about people who who earn a living working at the cinema we're talking about thousands and thousands of jobs in the yep. UK we're talking about thousands of jobs in America and it's people's livelihoods at stake and at the end of the day I, I adore the cinema industry and anything that happens that damages the cinema industry I'm against so I'm not a big fan of this yeah. move um, I'm yeah. I'm I'm on the same page as you david but i must throw this out here now i think this is this was always the way this was going to go streaming services were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and over the last two and a half years since we've been doing this podcast we've seen this rise of netflix just get much bigger apple tv plus is brand new disney plus with all of its amazing content that's on there um and and uh, even Sky Cinema that gets all of these exclusive movies, HBO Max as well. I mean, it's just it's Hulu. I mean, the list goes on. And as these streaming services have have developed, cinema chains have been getting smaller. So the the big cinema chains, I don't think is a, is a tenable business plan anymore. I think the the smaller chains or the smaller independents people will flock to still go to because that's an experience. Yeah. I think the the really state of the art cinemas chain wise 
will do fine as well. Ones that have everything you could possibly want there. The ones that are in the middle of those those chains, yeah. so the ones that haven't been upgraded in many years, that aren't actually quite that nice to go to, haven't really got the best technology, haven't been upgraded, you know, haven't been done up to look nice, all that sort of stuff. I think they're going to start closing down. And, if, and it's really sad to say that, but now the money's gone that there probably was going to be invested in them. Mm. And I think we'll start yeah. to see big cinema chains become small chains now. And yeah, and it's sad. Uh, do you think going to the cinema will become the new sort of going to the theatre, like maybe like a like 30, to, I don't know, like, a really expensive ticket like a 50 60 pound ticket but you get the full works you get like a maybe like a you know like a, a proper meal and stuff like that like a sit down area um i think that's, I, seats you know what? and things like that like you know going to the cinema is going to become a real like they have to make it a real event now yeah to, to compete with stuff like this you've it's made just, that sound like a business plan to me because i to me Going to the cinema, the best way of making that even better is like going to the theatre. So you get, you can get yourself like a pamphlet that has all the notes from the director and the cinematographer and how they approached it. Going in, sitting down in this lovely area, having a read of that before you go into the film, looking about the actors, who who they've got playing it, like all of these lovely notes that you can get in in a brochure, like going to the theatre and then having luxurious seating areas, luxurious seats that you're sitting in, the most state of the art. Um, projections going on with like IMAX and and yeah. whatever's you know top notch, and it will be an event to go to the cinema. It will be it will be something that it co- will cost more, but it will cost more because it's a, even more of an experience. It's not going to be like Netflix where you binge on the films. Like yeah. that's what we've been doing though, David and I, especially with our unlimited cards, we binge the films in the cinema <laughs> and we kind of overlook what that experience is about yeah. other than the big screen and the good sound mm. and the good projection. There has to be more to get the average person into yeah. that cinema. And that is probably the way it's going to go. I, that's how yeah, I foresee I, it. That's, that's how I see it going as well. I mean, as a person who does work in cinema, I, I work for City World. Um, you know, this this news is is very strange to to hear. You know, mm. it's like you know we we were trying to get ready to to be able to show these films, you know, and get back to normal. But if you can watch it at home and avoid uh, being in contact with someone who possibly has COVID, of course you're going to take that. And you know. It's not cheap. I know it's not cheap going to the cinema. If you have a family, you can sit at home, you can all watch Dune together for however much HBO Max is a month compared to what a cinema ticket is. Like, of course, you know, most mm. consumers will take that option. It's, it, mm. yeah, it's it's a very, <clears throat> it's going to be very interesting to see. There's been a lot of fallout from this. Uh, obviously, I've mentioned Christopher Nolan's quote, uh, legendary pictures who financed a lot of the films I mentioned earlier are threatening yep. to sue to sue Warner Brothers because they weren't told about how this was gonna how their films were gonna be distributed. Wow. Um and Denis Villeneuve has written an open letter to Warner Brothers today, uh, the director of Dune. Um yeah. and a quick quote from him is Dune is by far the best movie I've ever made. My team and I devoted more than three years of our lives to make it a unique big screen experience. Our movies, image and sound were meticulous, meticulously designed to be seen in theatres. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, if, I would say <clears throat> I would say uh, Google his open letter and read it because it's really well well written and really he talks about how this is just a move for the AT and T investors and AT and T is the company that owns Warner Brothers overall. Um, he talks about how this yeah this was just a move to in, in, like please the people in charge of the stock and everything, um, which is interesting. But um, yeah, it's it's it it is definitely industry changing. It's like I said, I think this is the way it was going to go forward, and COVID has just given them the opportunity to do it. Um, David, have you got anything else you want to add before I just quickly round off what Disney said? Yeah, so I, I thought it was really interesting what you said about will cinemas have to change the movie-going experience yeah. and make it more like theatres? Well, there is a problem with that, and the problem is is that cinemas won't want to you know, outprice uh, a significant chunk of the country. I actually see it going the other way. I can foresee cinemas when they reopening, when they reopen, sorry, um, doing cheaper tickets, two for one, maybe free popcorn for everyone that comes in. Because what I think you need to do is get bums on seats, get people back in cinemas, get people falling in love with that big screen experience so that they can, and and not price people out of those experiences. Because it would be a, t- a tragedy that if... Um, um, the cinema became like the West End theatre, which is, you know, mm. something that only a certain class of people, you know, you've got to yeah. be pretty well off to to justify 60, 70 quid a ticket in the West End. I'd hate mm. to see the cinema going down that route. Yeah. So I would, if I was involved, if I was the CEO of Cineworld, I'd be doing two for one tickets. I'd be doing um, 50% off of all food. I'd be doing anything and everything I could to get all types of people back into cinema. But the thing is, they can't afford to do that because they've been closed for a year. They've and lost. That's why I'm not the they, CEO of Cineworld. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, they've lost over a billion, haven't they? I think yeah, that's exactly. like that's a lot of money, and it's still yeah. they're still losing money as we speak. Exactly. Every day that they're not open and films aren't playing in the cinema, they are losing mm, money. Yeah. yeah. So how? How can they innovate? Well, that's what we've just discussed, really, isn't it? And yeah. and you know what, David, I hope it goes more the way that you said somehow bringing bums back on seats i don't want them to just give away stuff and i don't want them to really i don't want them to sell things too cheaply but yeah you know there has to be some kind of incentive to get people back in what can it be i don't know and i think i to be honest with you from a business perspective i think they're going to close a lot of cinemas a lot of the ones that don't make any of the money the ones that really need refurbishing that they just there's no point doing now and any money that they have spare then they will invest in the ones that do make them money to make them mm. even better than they could be and that will bring people back in because if, if they can show that they've got the best technology the best sound the best picture quality people are going to want to go and see those films there and that's what gonna, ultimately will bring people there and it will be you know even if it's Cineworld Hamill Hempstead, for instance, that cinema gets upgraded anymore to, to you know, laser 4K projection um, in every screen with an IMAX laser projector as well, dual laser projection. Yeah. You know, that would make me want to go back there even more than I already do. You know, that would be a real, that would bring people from Milton Keynes, that would bring people from Watford, all of those places to come to that one location and they yeah. will make more money than they could imagine by doing that that's how i foresee it going from a business point of view yeah i think i agree with that um so just quickly um i'll, I'll go over disney's 
sort of response to this. So Disney had a investor uh, shareholder call yesterday um, and they announced... Which, which strangely, a lot of people could actually tune in and watch as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Weirdly, you could live stream it so you could find out everything. Like It was a, a weird oh, nice. live stream that everybody could watch. I bet people were okay. having great fun on the stock markets then. The Disney share price must have been going all yeah. over the place. It was, it was streaming on Disney+. Plus. And it was streaming on Hulu <laughs> and on ESPN oh. Plus as well. They should have done a better, like a better marketing for that, then, because I did not know that. But um, anyway, so I'll give you a list of ten new Star Wars um, projects in the works. So they have Star Wars: Rangers of the New Republic, Star Wars: The Bad Batch, Star Wars: Obi Wan Kenobi, Star Wars: Ahsoka, Star Wars: Andor, Lando, Visions, Rogue Squadron. The Acolyte and a droid story. So that's 10 Star Wars projects I've just named. Two, no, sorry, one of those is a film. Yeah. <laughs> that is will it, be going to the cinemas. Isn't there another one as well? An unnamed, or did you say that? An, an unnamed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, another one, uh, and there'll be two films. One, uh, Rogue Squadron, is directed by Patty Jenkins, which is yeah. a film coming out in cinemas. And Taika Watiti will be directing yeah. a film which hasn't yeah. got a title yet. Yeah. Which, wow. which. You know, didn't he directed one of my favourite episodes of um, yeah, Mandalorian. Mandalorian as well? Yeah, and I've yeah. only just finished season one of of, Ma- of the Mandalorian, and it's so yeah. good. Disney, I hate you, but I love you at the same time. <laughs> You're doing something to me that I I really hate. I I've said on on the podcast I want to boycott Disney, and I got I did so well, but the content that's going on there if yeah. we don't look, watch it and we don't review it we're losing people who will li- will listen to this podcast wanting to listen to a review of what it is that we we're watching on there so i yeah. had to resubscribe again i had to which and and i hate myself for doing that i really <laughs> really do genuinely because what they're doing almost as bad as hbo max um and warner brothers are doing is is putting a lot of content that could be going into the cinema on Disney Plus. Now, granted, a lot of it TV-wise from the Star Wars stuff sounds excellent, and mm. I'm very excited for that. But there's a lot more, isn't there, Ange? There was a lot more that they yeah. dumped on the internet. In addition to that, they announced 23 Marvel projects. Oh. Uh, a, lot, a lot more of those are films, though. I think we've got one, two, three, four, five... Okay, five of those are films. <laughs> the rest are TV shows. Um, again, like, can you can you believe that the future of Star Wars is on TV? I think that's pretty crazy, considering how historic and the sort of how how much of an impact the original film had on the cinema industry and the blockbuster film industry. You know, it kick-started the summer blockbuster, really. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's the, the future's on Disney Plus now. I think that's... But this is exactly the way it's going. The streaming yeah. services are innovating how we consume visual content. And we, as, as species almost, prefer watching TV series... Series is episode episodic <laughs> episodic series, I suppose, is the way to pull it. Mm. Um, you know, with the Mandalorian being what some of the episodes up to an hour, some of them forty yeah, minutes, some of them half easy. an hour. It really does yeah. vary, and they're very, very, very watchable. 
bite-sized pieces of content. But, but there's also TV shows that are longer than that, episodes that are longer. But we want to have that experience of of binge-watching things like that or even taking it slow and watching mm. it once a week. It, this is yeah. they, they've they've just foreseen this psychological aspect of the way we consume content and more people are watching it like this and it's so evident in the amount of content that they're putting on these on these services yeah david do you think this is just like the common trend at the moment do you think this bubble will burst and people will be bored of these these tv shows and they'd want to go back to long-form films Craig makes a very good point about people like liking episodes and TV series. I don't know if it's human evolution or if it's the way we live now. People don't like long films. People don't like long chunks of sitting in front of 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 a of a screen. I mean, admittedly, they'll do like a forty minute episode and they'll do ten of them. So maybe what I'm saying doesn't quite make sense. But people like bite sized chunks of cinema or of of series, and. Yeah. You know the the Mandalorian. Look, Mickey Mouse is a very wealthy mouse. Um, <laughs> he he's not short of a bob or two, and they know what they're doing. And they'll have looked at how the Mandalorian has done. Um, they'll have looked at the numbers. They'll have looked at, at look Star Wars sells. You go anywhere in the world, and yeah. and people recognise characters from Star Wars. And Disney are very very smart. And I think there's a demand for these kind of things. Um, and will the bubble burst? Only time will tell. But mm. the the industry is changing. The way people are watching stuff is changing. And you hear it so often now when I listen to um, some other people's reviews or I read reviews, people often say that would have worked. We've even said it. Oh, yeah. isn't it a shame that that wasn't a series? Like that would have worked really, really well as a series. And you see the BBC and other big companies taking traditional stories and instead of making them as films, they make them as a, a four-part drama or whatever. Mm. So it's definitely the, the industry is evolving. As humans, we like, and it's a 40-minute episode or an hour episode if you want to watch it back to back, you can, but you, it's, it's, it's manageable. Whereas, uh, you know, a long film, look at Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, loved by critics, um, audiences not so much because it did last about four years. Um, <laughs> and th- there is a problem with long films. Films are getting shorter. Uh, and it's because people want that bite sized, quick fire, you know, now I want it now entertainment. Yeah. And it's, it's, so they it's, can go back on their phones quickly. Yeah. You no, know, this is it. Our attention yeah. spans are so, short these days Mm. that we can only manage maybe 40 minutes to an hour or 50 minutes whatever of watching something before we have to look at our phones or before we have to pick something up or 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 do something different um before maybe reconnecting with the next part of a story in a much bigger arc so that's why the mandalorian is is so i think really loved at the minute is because these stories they have a beginning a middle and an end but there's an overarching story going on that we still tune in every week for because it's all connected and and I don't know. I just think that's the way storytelling's going, or or filmmaking's going, in a way, is that these, the combination between TV and film is happening now, and it's happening on streaming services. And it's a shame it's not happening in in, in the cinema because imagine 
releasing you know the mandalorian into cinema yeah uh, on a weekly basis on a maybe a, a cheap ticket price yeah how cool I would want... that be yeah i don't see that ever happening though I think... oh no definitely not yeah, because I... the way we consume is yeah uh, you know instant everything yeah. has to happen immediately yeah i think yeah and i think i think this is a very sort of dangerous line to go down because the further we go down this 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 path we're going to get loads loads of content thrown at us on these streaming services most of it won't get seen and we're just going to get really really low quality stuff coming out and i think we're starting we're starting to get that already with like netflix netflix uh, movies made like fully funded by themselves like we talked about um uh, oh god chris hemsworth was in it when he slapped the kid oh, <laughs> oh, oh god i can't remember the name of that film yeah we reviewed it on cinema at home a while ago extraction yeah, extraction well yeah done. you know like we're, we're gonna go go down that path i think like we all said it was just it was just meh. fine it was just quite yeah meh it was just a bit average mm. um you know we'll go down the sort of straight to dvd quality stuff if we if we no longer have you know if studios no longer finance the big budget stuff to go into the cinemas i mean that's yeah. one that's one thing uh denis Villeneuve said in his open letter to warner brothers is that this move has killed the dune franchise he doesn't believe that it can carry on now because it'll get pirated and it won't make the money back that they've put into it like it's just you know mm. it's, it, just it's, sorry go on, go on. Okay, well, I was just going to say just a quick rundown then um, of all of the Disney Plus stuff that they've dumped on the internet today is basically um, the Mo- the Mighty Ducks, Game Changers, Turner and Hooch, Hotshot. Oh my god, I'm having uh, ow! <laughs> I'm really sorry. I'm having cramp in my leg. On the air. <laughs> Terrible cramp. Stretch the it out, worst, mate. The worst cramp I think I've ever had, and it happens whilst I'm reading out something. That's terrible. It's going away now. It's fading away. Great. <laughs> Sorry. Hydrate yourself, man. Yeah. Uh, where did I get to? Turner and Hooch, Hot Shot, Beauty and the Beast, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, Hocus Pocus 2, Three oh, Men wow. and a Baby, Jungle Cruise, The Lion King prequel, The Little Mermaid, Chippendale, Rescue Rangers, Pinocchio, uh, Peter Pan and Wendy, Sister Act 3, uh, Cruella, um, new LucasArts movies, Indiana Jones 5, wow. Willow, um, animations, uh, shows and movies, Baymax, Zootopia Plus, Moana, Tiana, Encanto, uh, there's a, there's a Pixar movies, Popcorn, Doug Days, Cars the Series, Win or Lose, Luca, Turning Red, Lightyear, must be a standalone Buzz Lightyear film. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, Chris Evans is voicing him. Wow. New yeah. Marvel, WandaVision, um, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, What If, Miss Marvel, Captain Marvel 2. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Hawkeye, She-Hawk, Moon Knight, Secret Invasion, Ironheart, Armor Wars, The Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special. Okay. Yeah. I Am Groot, um, The Fantastic Four, Four, Love and Thunder, Black Panther 2. Wow. Uh, this is this is incredible. Yeah. Sorry, sorry Craig, you, you cut out there. Could, could you just repeat those? <laughs> are you joking i am joking <laughs> it was a joke mate sorry it was a really oh, bad God. joke more crap but, but not, not, oh, not but not only face. that david yeah 
Not only David, though. Can you repeat that? He li- I wish you guys could see what we saw. He went white as a ghost. <laughs> but, uh, David, not only that, they are now upgrading Disney Plus to seven ninety nine a month, and they will put on there more R-rated content from Fox. So that's Deadpool, that is uh, Die Hard. A, um, an alien TV show as well. Wow. There we go. Yeah. This is so much stuff. And that's not even stuff that's going on Hulu, which you would actually expect to be going on Hulu. It's there's a lot of content, and how can we ignore that? How? Well, we can't. Exactly. Yeah. <sighs> because we're small fry, and if we tried to boycott it, people would go. People would just they well, Disney would just shrug their shoulders. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, definitely. Is, is that all the news, Rand? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's that's enough news for now. Yeah, that was long, but you know what? Very much so worth listening to. Yeah. News. We interrupt this broadcast or visit Worth It, the film review podcast, for an important announcement. If you're enjoying the podcast, we would like to remind you that you can now become a Patreon supporter for as little as $3 a month. This helps the podcast to continue to grow as well as offering the potential for bonus content and Is It Worth It merchandise. Your support helps the podcast stay alive. So why not become a Patreon supporter today? Head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash Is It Worth It podcast. Following on from the news, our next review will be of On the Rocks. A young mother reconnects with her larger-than-life playboy father on an adventure through New York. Craig, can we have a clip, please? Yes, you can. Does my foot smell funny? Because <laughs> I was wondering... We're watching Breaking Bad. What? It's really good. It's a great show. Have you seen it? Yes, I have seen it. It's great. It's not for kids. What? Was there something bad on? No. Yeah. Hey, look, I can shuffle. Oh, wow, that's great. We learned that all young girls should know how to shuffle and how to... Bluff. Bluff, right. (laughs) And how do you bluff? Poker face. Poker face. Poker face. Poker face. Nice, nice. So that was a clip from On The Rocks. And in that clip, we saw Bill Murray, who plays a father and a grandfather, introducing his uh, granddaughters to things like um, Breaking Bad and poker, um, as every grandfather should do, every responsible <laughs> grandfather. Um, what, who's this film from? Well, it's an A24 uh, film, um, and it is directed by Sofia Coppola, um, probably best known for her work in Lost in Translation. Um, she also wrote this um, particular film, it stars Bill Murray, Rashida Jones and Marlon Wyans. And what do I have to say about this film to kick off my review? Um, I just want to say that I really, really enjoyed this film. Um, I didn't go in with huge expectations. Um, I went in blind, so I didn't watch any trailers. I didn't do any sort of research before the film. The only thing I knew about it is that it was a 40 to 1 shot for Best Picture, um, and I knew that there was a little bit of an awards um, buzz for it, um, also a little bit of awards buzz for um, Bill Murray in the um, Supporting Actor category. Um, 
And the first thing I'll say about this film is it's really well paced. Like it had such an engaging start that immediately I was hooked um, with this film. Um, it was also really tense at times. It's called On the Rocks because we see Rashida Jones and Marlon Wayans' marriage being exactly that, On the Rocks. And that's why Bill Murray sort of brought in almost as like an undercover agent, really, to investigate what the hell's going on, um, particularly with um, Marlon Wayans' character. What's he up to? what's he doing um the the great thing about this film is that it has superb character development like i was really really engaged with these characters from right right from the off um and i think the performances are very commendable as well um rashida jones is is very well cast she's a very likable and engaging character and also very very relatable in her day-to-day -day struggles um but for me the person that really steals the show is bill murray i think again he is superbly cast and he gives this really cool calm sophisticated um just brilliant performance um without too many spoilers there's one scene where he's driving a convertible through new york and he's pulled over by the police and within a matter of minutes he just manages to woo the police round and he's on his way um the film is just over 90 minutes so it's a very compact screenplay and a really really tight edit and i just thought it was very very watchable um i haven't spoken to ranji at all about this film so i don't know what he thought maybe he hated it so i'm really looking forward to finding out ranji on the rocks what did you think wow um i wouldn't say i hated it i just i don't think this film was for me oh wow <laughs> yeah um i really liked bill murray's performance and rashida jones i love them both i love rashida jones and bill murray but really engaging captivating performances from both of them especially bill murray every time he's on the screen it's so fun to watch in the film um and you know like you mentioned lost in translation how sophia sophia coppola really manages to portray sort of loneliness and alienation really well and she does it really well again in this film um, with Rashida Jones's character in certain scenes with her husband, like it's just, it's just directed really well with that aspect. Um, but for me, it just felt just so meandering and a little just out of touch with reality. Like especially, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that scene with the police. Like, I just felt like you know not everyone you know sort of has that experience, especially in America, especially nowadays. <laughs> like, very you, true. You know, you're, you're not going to talk your way out of a ticket, like. You know, we've seen what happens in the real world. Most people get killed for that. Like, just do what he did. Like, it's... I just felt it just... Just too out of touch with reality. Like, it's interesting we're reviewing this film with a film we're going to review later, Hillbilly Elegy, about, um, you know, societal problems and things like that. Because Rashida Jones and, like, her family, they seem like a very sort of wealthy, like, well-off family. She's a, she's a published author in this film and her husband's company is doing really well. And then, like, I found it just very, very mixed in its messaging. Like, are they condoning Bill Murray's behaviours? Like, he's very, yeah. he's he's very sleazy. Like, he's just a bit of a sleaze bag at points. He's just, bit, like, saying these really uncomfortable things to all these women around him. And it's just like, what are you, what are you trying to tell me about him? Like, uh, there, there is more that gets. Um, uh, revealed about Bill Murray's character and Rashida Jones's mum later on down the film. But then I think 
do, are they trying to justify that? Is that is that the justification for his sort of behavior? I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it. Like David, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I obviously I didn't know what you were going to say, but I think you've highlighted some some things that perhaps I overlooked. I mean, Bill Murray's character is complex, so there's no doubt that yeah. he is sleazy and he is a bit of a womanizer. And clearly, I mean, I, unless I'm mistaken, we never really he's obviously retired. We, do we ever find out what he ever did for work? I think it was mentioned he sold art. Yes, you're 100 percent right. Paintings and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So he was an art yeah. dealer, and obviously a very yeah. good art dealer because he's not short of a bob or two, and you can yeah. see that in the way he carries himself and the things he wears in the restaurants he takes people out to. Um, I understand what you mean. It, uh, again, it's because it's such a character-heavy film because there's no action sequences. Hmm. If if you're not invested in these characters then you're going to struggle with it um and one of the characters i did struggle with so you had um, rashida jones playing laura and then you had her husband dean who was played by marlon wyans i really struggled with his performance like i found him very unrelatable very cold um he was like compared to bill murray he wasn't funny he wasn't charming he wasn't he wasn't uh, and the thing was, he wasn't unlikable either. So we weren't supposed to love him or hate him. He was just a very in the middle, nothing character. And I really struggled with him. Uh, you know, for example, the the two grandchildren, even though they were only in it very, very briefly. Um, uh, forgive me, I don't have their names. I'm not even sure if they're credited because they're... Um, oh, actually, no, they are. Um, Alexandra Mary Raymer and Anel Chanel Raymer. Um so they were obviously um, oh, real sisters. Real sisters, yeah. yeah. Um, watch out for them. Um, I thought the way they conducted themselves on screen was yeah. remarkable. Like they yeah, were so natural. It, yeah. it almost felt to me like during that scene that we had a clip from, the director, Sofia Coppola, said, Bill, have fun with these kids and I'll film it. And if there's anything I'll like, we'll keep it in the film. Because that's how natural it felt. Like um, it really did. But I, what did you think of Marlon Wayans' performance? I, I was I struggled with it. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. But I think I think that might be intentional because we're sort of seeing the film through Rashida Jones's eyes, and that's how she's feeling about her relationship with her husband at that point in the film. That you know, it's, she's she's wary of her husband's. Um, you know, she she thinks her husband might be cheating on him, so yeah. he feels very distant to her, very cold to her. Like he said, maybe that was intentional. Maybe he's done it. Maybe he was directed that way. Um, but yeah. I, I mean, I think the film, without Bill Murray, this film is just, it's nothing. I don't think it, it will be this, it has the same impact that it had, that it had you know, yeah. it has with him in it. Um, but yeah, I just, overall, I just thought it was just a bit, I couldn't, I, I think I would disagree with you on the pace. I think it's just, for me, it was just very, I was just sort of like, okay, just, just get on with it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I had that. I, I think it was, I couldn't relate to anyone I was watching to on screen. I mm. think that's that's if, my disconnect with this film. If I may, if I may come in here, I know I haven't seen this movie, but I would like to pose a question to each of you. Um, question one for both of you. Um, do you feel like this film might be a little bit too cliched in what it's trying to portray on screen? Ooh, good question. Um, I'll I'll go first. It definitely 
follows some certain stereotypes um you know the the struggling writer the um eccentric father um the distant husband the um very boisterous children you know the these sort of characters are very much boxed and neatly wrapped um but i think I think it works. Um, I don't know what you think, Ranji. I've, I've forgot the original question now, but... <laughs> is it too clichéd? Um, I, I don't think so. I don't think it is. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I don't think that's the that's the issue with this film. For me, I don't think that's the issue with this film. I think for me, it is the, the relatability of the characters. And even though I liked Bill Murray in this film, like there was just some things that I just maybe i just found almost inexcusable especially especially that that scene where he gets pulled over by the police officer and he just you know charms his way out of it with his charisma mm. and stuff like that it's just it just felt so disconnected to reality i like just mm. i don't know I, I really did it didn't sit well with me yeah so what about then um as my final question to both of you this being on apple tv plus mm. um you both consumed this on apple tv plus mm. um is this was this the rightful place where it, it turned up would there be this be something that perhaps you would actually want to watch in the cinema or is it something that actually you know streaming services where it belongs and maybe it, this is the, the correct streaming service for it or is it more of a netflix i mean i do feel certain movies lend themselves to certain streaming services and and apple tv seemed to be buying up yeah. you know really high budget slick movies yeah maybe even dramas that have a lot of character development in them um you know netflix buys anything and everything um amazon seemed to be quite similar as well in that approach but there seems to be a lot more uh, I don't know. They just seem whatever yeah. Netflix doesn't have that's high quality. Amazon yeah. will have, and then but I think Apple TV are really trying to approach it from an angle that neither of them are doing, and they're only picking and buying the movies that they think are of a certain quality. Is it of that certain yeah. quality? I mean, you can tell you can tell straight away it's an Apple production because everyone's got the got an iphone and apple mac it's just all hitting you straight straight away in the um so did apple, apple, did apple fund this because i know it was a24 originally i think it looks like it i mean the apple stuff is just like in plain view a lot of the times like i i'm sure they i'm sure they you know had a sponsorship sure deal of some yeah. sort yeah because because everything else i've seen on apple plus i've i've been watching um defending jacob and uh, a show called ted lasso two shows on apple plus and in there again, it's just Apple products hitting you left, right, and centre. It's just iPhones and Macs everywhere. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, so something interesting about streaming services is that um, they have, like the BBC, they have broadcast um, policies as to what you, you're allowed to film on in terms of cameras, in terms of what you export your media, your final output for the streaming services has to be a certain. Um, format and it has to be a certain resolution and um, I think Apple are going down the really high quality route Um, you know certain cameras can only be used to make the productions that you're going to be presenting to Apple TV plus or they're going to be buying up so it has to be 
um, very high quality. You couldn't shoot something which has been done on a, a phone camera, for instance. Um, we've seen this a few times and actually yeah. hit hit theaters. But you know, this I I think Apple are are going down that approach. And 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 if if on the rocks is worth it from both of you guys or even watches one of you when when we're saying this is it's is it worth watching at home but also would would people go is it worth watching on the big screen as well and i think that's the second question to answer when we ask the final question because this is playing in cinemas they are playing in independence and it is still available to watch i believe at this current moment in time um in the cinema so think about that when you go and ask the questions to each other <laughs> okay um should, should we ask the questions <laughs> i don't know i mean if you're finished uh go for it mate yeah, go for it. I've got yeah a little, i think i'm ready um <laughs> ranji i'll ask you first on the rocks is it worth it and is it worth seeing at home or is it worth also possibly going to the cinema to see i think i think it would be worth going to the cinema if you can have like a you know somewhat <laughs> socially distanced communal communal experience with other people in the screen like you know maybe because you know bill bill murray is a big enough name to get people in cinemas and like i said when he's on screen it's you know sometimes it's quite fun to watch sometimes um but if you're thinking of maybe subscribing to apple plus just for this film i don't think it's worth it that's a really interesting viewpoint actually really interesting because Apple TV is obviously significantly cheaper and has more content on it. Whereas yeah. if you're going to go to the cinema, you pay a one-off fee, but you think it's more worth going to sit in the cinema for that one-off fee rather than actually subscribing to, to Apple TV just for this one movie. Yeah. When you've got Greyhound available on there as well. So is it worth subscribing to Apple TV Plus? <laughs> <laughs> That's the this is the problem. There's too much content yeah. on there. Yeah, very true. I don't know. <laughs> you, you lost me now. I know. <laughs> yeah. The universe. It's gone. Yeah. I, I I'm I'm also ready for the question. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Uh yeah, so for me, on the rocks, is it worth it? Um firstly, is it worth seeing in the cinema? I think yes. Um one of the things I didn't mention is that the cinematography is by uh, Philippe Lassord, um, captures New York brilliantly. Um, and there's, I can't describe how it's, ca- but there's something magical about the way New York is captured on camera here uh, and would certainly be worth seeing on the big screen. I think On the Rocks would be good to see in the cinema because it's visually impressive. I think it would give you a good discussion before, maybe not during, but before and after the film. Um, And also, I think it's worth watching on Apple TV+. Plus. I I am a subscriber to Apple TV Plus, and I would suggest that it's worth. I don't know how much Apple TV Plus is. Forgive me, five ninety nine a month. Um, I would suggest that it is worth that five ninety nine a month, even if you cancel uh, straight after. Also, watch Greyhound with Tom Hanks. Um, I think this is is definitely worth seeing. I think Bill Murray gives a brilliant performance. Um, I never. We never d- dived into it that deeply, but what I would say is look out for Bill Murray in the Best Supporting Actor category come the Oscars. Um, I don't think it's a category he'll win, um, but I think he's definitely going to be nominated. Um, so for me, On the Rocks, definitely worth it.
So it's now time for our third and final review on week 49 of Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast. And we will be reviewing Hillbilly Elegy. Um, What is this film about? Well, an urgent phone call pulls a Yale law student back to his Ohio hometown where he reflects on three generations of family history and his own future. And before all three of us dive into a clip of Hillbilly Elegy, let's take a little listen to a clip. You gotta take care of business, you gotta go to school, you gotta get good grades to even have a chance. Mom was the best in her class. What's the point? I'm talking about a chance. You might not make it, but you sure as hell won't if you don't try. Why do you even care what I do? I ain't gonna live forever. Who's gonna take care of this family when I'm gone? I thought your mama was going to be all right. Be happy. Do good. But she got tore up around here. She just up and quit. She just stopped trying. I know. I could have done better. But you... You gotta decide. You want to be somebody or not. So that was a clip from Hillbilly Elegy, and I think that was a really well selected clip from Craig there. Um that I is think a you clip. selected that one actually. I, I did, but I thought I'd give you credit. <laughs> 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 just 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 roll with it uh, it's normally you that does the clips so i was just in autopilot that, and i can't really also i can't really say i've selected a great clip it's a really there. great clip that i've selected <laughs> but it is a good clip um and i'll tell you why because um before i dive into my overall thoughts of this film performances are what saves this film in my opinion and glenn close um gives a great performance uh, and you heard there that the passion uh, physically she's transformed she looks totally different and she looks very much like the character um she's portraying um this film is directed by ron howard um who actually directed two of my favorite films ever apollo 13 and a beautiful mind um if you haven't seen either of those two films watch them um they're both brilliant um particularly a beautiful mind russell crowe gives a great performance um the film is actually based on the memoir by jd vance the memoir was called hillbilly elegy a memoir of a family and culture in crisis the memoir came out in 2016 and it's jd vance's story about where he's come from how he ended up at yale what he's done subsequently um and that's what this film is about it's about this young youngish man striving for a better life um he has a a, an an addict for a mum played by um amy adams uh, and a very eccentric heavily smoking grandmother played by glenn close um I spoke about this on Road to the Oscars. Before I'd seen this film, I said I thought the trailer was too long before I saw the film. And I 100% stand by that. If you're going to watch this film, the first thing I would say is to watch it blind because so much of this film is given away in the trailer, in my opinion, which is a real shame. Um, I could talk quite in depth about what I thought about this film, but I want to bring the other guys in. Um, 
Or, or, sh- or sh- should I should I carry on, or do you guys want to jump in? <laughs> I mean, I mean, um, it depends where you're going, really. What was your first thought then that you were, you know, your first? Well, basically, bit of take I here? think the, the 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 film has a nice opening, mm-hmm. um, and when I say nice opening, I'm talking about the sort of four or five minute montage at the start of the film. It sets us up very very well, and once we're into the film, what we soon begin to realise is that the film is actually two stories for the price of one because we've got flashbacks to when JD was younger and that runs alongside his story as he's older. Um, But that is also problematic. Um, And I'll go off the bat and say that I didn't hate this film, but I didn't love it either. Um, I will mention the Rotten Tomato scores later because I think they're very, very relevant. Um, From an audience perspective, there was much to admire about this film, but critically, it it was a little bit of a mess. It had an uneven narrative. I think there were problems with the pace. It felt very, very over-dramatised at, at times. Like I was very, very aware. As brilliant as the performances are from Amy Adams, Glenn Close and others, um, I was very aware that I was watching a film um, and something felt a little bit off. Um, I do have some more to say, but I'll yeah. save it. Um, Craig, w- what did you think of Hillbilly Elegy? So, yes, you're right. Something is off with this film. And to put it lightly, it's you have a very you have a we have we have a pot here. We, we're going to be cooking with this pot and we're going to throw in some ingredients. And in the uh, pot, we're throwing in um, addiction. Yeah, we're yep. throwing in um, abuse. We're throwing in um you know, motivated, um, you know, trying to, you know, a young boy with dreams and aspirations and we're throwing in lack of poverty, lack of a father. You're throwing in literally everything and the kitchen sink into this pot to, to, to make a film that, that Mm. is in a sense, it's a generic film that has everything in it that, you know, there's just too much of everything in it. Now I get it. This is a true story. This is based on a memoir that that was told in it was 2016, wasn't this memoir yeah, came the memoir, out? Memoir, yeah. Um by JD Vance as you said, and I think it, it's it's unapologetically honest in that sense, but it's it, it's it's too honest to that memoir perhaps. It follows it too much um in terms of trying to be authentic to it and it it gets very confused and we we're looking at the main protagonist throughout this whole film and he it, there's this very generic dialogue that happens throughout the film that is uh, it feels like you're reading some sort of motivational i don't know like some sort of motivational yeah. film to Poster try and, or something. yeah like, yeah it's weird isn't it it's yeah. really weird, and you then also get distracted by that the 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 real people that you want to follow. You never delve into the the, the traumatic experiences from Amy Adams and Glenn Close. These two, these people who yeah. have done had really traumatic experiences, but you're seeing it through yeah. the child and the older child, and it. I don't know. I don't want to be following his story and I feel like he's not doing justice to the story that really it needs to be told, which is not his own. 
it's his mum's and his and his, and her and her mum's. It's it's their stories that really we want to be yeah. seeing and delving into, and that's why I think it's a mess. A hundred percent. I feel like the women of the film are actually sidelined in some ways for his story. And it feels selfish almost to be seeing that unfold on the screen. Now, I haven't read the memoir. It could play out the same way. It might not. But that is how it felt to me. Um, Ranji, what did you yeah. think? Uh, you've, yeah, you've hit a lot of the points I wanted to say. Like I was, I was going to say, like, I... Again, like, I, I don't, I can't engage with the main character in this film. Like, you're right. I want to know, I want to know more about Amy Adams' character and Glenn Close's character. I, I can't even remember the main character's name. I, I, just, I just watched it a couple of it's hours JD, ago. isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's JD. JD yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it's, the film was just so unfocused. Um, yeah. There's way too many flashbacks. I think it just should have been, I was thinking about this. Do you think this would have been better in a linear uh, a storytelling form mm. like maybe we we because maybe we don't know how he ends up at the start maybe that has a bigger effect on the audience because we, we know where he ends up he ends up in uh like, like you said in in yale um he's doing well for himself he's he's having good he's having a he's got a good interview coming up like we know that already as the audience maybe maybe it would have been better to find find that out slowly i, I don't know i don't know this film is just so unfocused um and yeah i just i don't i don't want to follow jd i want to know more about amy adams and Mimor, who's played by glenn, uh, glenn close who's you're you're right david that both the performances are incredible by both of them like both well-established brilliant actresses all the time you never get a good you never get a bad performance from either of them um and it's just this film had so much potential mm-hmm. and i think it, it was just wasted yeah a lot of it was wasted yeah, it had the potential because it had so many. It had the it had the talent attached to it. Yeah, it had the some of the ingredients that it just had too many ingredients, didn't it? It could have it could have been an expression of things that are going on in America at the minute in terms of like an opioid yeah. crisis. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, absolutely, like huge. Um, the impact of poverty i guess is another one isn't it and like you know and these are these are big things to talk about in films at the minute yeah but it just it just sort of glazed up against them it just sort of just sort of touched it a little bit it didn't it didn't go right into it i really wanted it to just delve really into the nitty-gritty things but leave out some of the other bits and and take a look at the people that are on the on the ed, on the fringes of this story almost mm. okay maybe they're not on the fringes but they sort of they they interweave with our main protagonist and that's why that's why i didn't like it i think that because it was so interwoven with the main protagonists and they come and fade yeah. in and fade out it just didn't it, it just remove JD from the story almost and have him pop up every now and then let's follow the real people that we want to be talking about here. And that's, and that's Amy Adams's character. That's Glenn Close's character and, 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 and the traumatic things that they've had happen to have, have happened to them. Yeah. And it's frustrating me talking about it now because that's the that's the movie that I want to see. This it just on reflection isn't a good film. It really isn't. There's there was a point in the film where JD even says, uh, I don't know, it's a bit of a spoiler, but he says, um, 
how much uh, Glenn Close is now. He says, I just want her to know how much she meant to me. Uh, he's talking about Glenn Close's character, Meemaw. Mm. But then you don't really see that. Like, that's exactly what should have been shown then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. David? Uh, I mean, it's tough because Amy Adams and Glenn Close obviously show stopping performances, but. It is about J.D. Vance. It is about his story, his rags to riches story almost, and how we're seeing everything really play out through his eyes. Um, but if you look at it that way, though, I don't... I, I, I understand what he did. And he wanted... You know, he worked hard to get himself out of this place and everything, but it it felt like a minuscule amount of his story that... Yeah. You know, his life hasn't played out yet. It's not, it's not complete. Yeah, very true. It's not a complete journey. It's his family's history and his family, like the things that have happened to his family that we're seeing, but everything revolves around him. And I think that's why it didn't work. It, it, it revolved too much around JD. Mm. I would say from watching, did you guys watch the trailer before you watched the film? Um, I don't I, think I did. I don't think I did either. No. Yeah, so you made the right decision because from watching the trailer, you don't get the impression that it's going to be, even though it's based on a novel on a memoir, sorry, by J.D. Vance, you get m- much more of a, f- a feeling that it's going to be about Glenn Close and Amy Adams, which is why I say to avoid the trailer because some of the most powerful scenes are in that um, are in that trailer. Um, so yeah, I was slightly surprised that it, even though obviously it's based on the memoir, like you said, how one-sided the the story was mm. um i just wondered what you guys thought because like i said i did feel a little bit detached but did any of the scenes really hit you hard because some of the scenes in this two in particular i'm not going to say what they were really had me like i'm not that much of an emotional person and particularly when it comes to films you know i, I don't tend to get that emotional but i got quite choked up at a couple of the scenes um, I just wondered if you guys had that or if you just didn't have the investment in the characters. No, I think I did have, it did have that emotional pull on me. And I think Ron, it is Ron Howard, isn't it? Who's directed yeah, yeah. this film. Like he does have a really good way and a unique way of, 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 of hitting you right in the heart, uh, especially with getting the actors um, to, to portray that in a, in a, in a way where you can really connect with it. It's just, it's just as a cohesive piece, I think. But um the the scenes that you're probably referring to, like yeah, they they are, they are powerful. But it's yeah. it take that take those out. I mean, uh, well, yeah, have have a look at those separately. And amazing. I mean, you could you could critique those amazing scenes, and look at them from from a critical point of view and be like, that was amazing. The performances was amazing. The direction was amazing. But when you look at it as the overall story. Mm. That's where it falls apart, isn't it? So, like, yeah. you know, Amy Adams is transformed, isn't she? You know, yeah. she becomes this person. Glenn Close becomes the Mimar, as you say. Like, they become those people, but the camera never completely focuses on them and the story never completely focuses on them. So those emotional scenes, like you say, yeah, they get you choked up and everything, or they, they you know, they, they impact you. But it's the overall story doesn't, unfortunately, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, sorry, Andrew, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I just felt very, I think, I think unsatisfied by the end of it is the right word for me. I just, yeah. 
I was just, I was just, I was just thinking, what was the point? What was the point of the film? I don't know what the overall point was, because, like I said, we know where he ends up already at the start. So, films that start at, at the end, almost, yeah. they never pan out well, do they? No, never. No. I'm trying true. to think of some for an example. Um, <laughs> I, I, one thing I did want to mention was the Rotten Tomato scores. Do you guys want yeah. to ha- have a guess, or do you know? Do you know them? I haven't looked. Um, I did look, and it was it was quite interesting. I'm I'm obviously not a fan of Rotten Tomato scores. So when you do read these out, please tell me what the um, overall number of people, so yeah, critics and audience, um, because I think that puts things into perspective as well. Because if not many critics have reviewed it, or there's been uh, a lot more audiences, the, the percentages don't seem to to, yeah. to to pan out. I don't think. Um, anyway, go on, go for it if you've got them. So from 223 critics, it gets 26%, um, whereas it gets an audience score. I don't have that in front of me at the moment, but I will look that up. It gets 85%. I just think that's really, really interesting that critically 26%, from an audience point of view, 85%. It's like, to me, that makes total sense. Like, but at the same time, I'm slightly surprised, not at how low the critic score is. That doesn't surprise me. Mm. I'm slightly surprised at how high the audience score is. Well, I've yeah. got I've got it up here now, and the number of users that have rated that so the, for the audience score is one thousand two hundred and seven yeah, so to, to two hundred and twenty six critics. So when you're when you're a critic, you know twenty six percent isn't a lot. It's not a great score, is it? Yeah, no, but, it's very but poor. Eighty five percent is high because you're gonna have a more varied audience on there. Yeah. Um, and I think I don't think actually looking at these Rotten Tomato scores does put things too much into perspective. But I think if you're an average audience, what it says is that you enjoyed this film, um, and I can see why. But as a critic, and that is what we are, we, you know, we have our critics hat on here. It isn't it it isn't a great film. I don't yeah. think I think it's worth maybe more than twenty six percent. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think it's higher than that. I think it is yeah. definitely, you know, when you look at the capabilities of all the actors and the, the way the film's made, the sound, the score, the the the, the hair and makeup, all of that mm. stuff that comes combined, you have to think about those as well. And I think it's definitely higher than 26%. I think it's at least 50, you know, but I don't I don't think it's rotten either. Um, yeah. But that's why um, Rotten Tomatoes, to me, isn't a great overview because when you yeah. have big sway swings like this, it just never reflects truly, I don't think. What yeah. I was trying to highlight to our listeners is that critically, um, this has not been well received, whereas from an audience perspective, it has been received better. Um, what I did want to say is, what did you guys think of the score? Because I don't know if you know who it was by or, or who the two people that produced the score were. Um, what did you think of it? I quite enjoyed it. I, I did actually quite like it, but I don't know who did it. I didn't check that. So it was by David Fleming and Hans Zimmer, believe it or not. Uh-huh. Um, so Hans Zimmer to me is the, is the goat when it comes yeah. to 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 you know music in in film. His his score, for example, in Gladiator alone, without the imagery as well, would have me in tears. That yeah. like I think his his music is masterful. Um, 
he, I thought I thought the music was brilliant, um, and also just quickly the cinematography was by uh, Maurice Alberti, uh, a French cinematographer. So apologies if I got her name wrong. Um, probably best known for her work on The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke, which if you've never seen before is a superb film. And visually, I was quite impressed with this film. But overall, there was something not quite right about it. It just didn't feel like a cohesive piece of filmmaking. No, I think we might be close enough now, or Glenn close enough now, to <laughs> ask the questions. Yeah, before that, I just wanted Ooh. to, um, I did have some correspondence from one of our regular listeners, oh, James. We love correspondence. We do. Um, James Williamson, um, he messaged me to say, I thought after watch, sorry, Hillbilly Elegy, I thought after watching that the film was a slow burn with lots of layers that you have to peel back like an onion. Would totally agree with that. I thought that Amy Adams and Glenn Close's performances were sensational, but I feel that one doesn't work without the other. Both actresses poured their souls into their roles, and I felt that they bounced off each other brilliantly to create a truly beautiful film. Um, I have spoken to James in more detail about this, and he he put across some really good points, actually. And he, he, from an audience perspective, I know he really, really enjoyed this. So thanks very much for getting in contact with the show, James. We always appreciate people who get in contact. And obviously, we appreciate the fact that you listen. So let's ask some questions and um, I'll go and, uh, and do that. Uh, Ranjit, Hillbilly Elegy, is it worth it? This is a very tricky question, I think, for this, this time. Um, it's worth it for Glenn Close and Amy Adams' performance, but overall, I'm going to say no. David, Hillbilly Elegy, is it worth it? It's a bit of a mess, but it's a mess that I'm willing to forgive because I think it has the right intentions. It has a nice score. It looks nice. It has some good performances. It's it's a shame um, because I was expecting more from this film. Um, in terms of its Oscar chances, I think this went fishing. I think this was a real Oscar baity kind of movie, and I don't yeah. think the Academy will bite. So I think many of its Oscar chances are, are down the pan. But for me, overall, it's on Netflix. So if you've got Netflix, I think for the performances alone, it's worth a watch. Craig, he'll be the energy for you. Is it worth it? I think yes, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, you know, Ron Howard isn't somebody that makes bad films. Um, you know, P Apollo 13, The Beautiful Mind, you know, these sort of films that Ron Howard's connected with um, are... are Solo. A solo a Star Wars story. Yeah, yeah no, it is good. It is good. Um, <laughs> didn't, he also, didn't he also finish off Rogue One as well? No. Didn't no, he? He, he, came, he came on to Solo after the original directors were fired. Oh, was that it? Yeah, that, yeah. Are you sure? What about Rogue One? Yeah. Um, Rogue One... It was Gareth Evans. But well, he, he came on to to finish it, didn't he? No, someone else. You're right, someone else did, but they were uncredited. I can't remember we're the name. I'm sure it was Ron Howard. I'm sure it was Ron Howard. We <laughs> yeah. are getting sidetracked. I'm sure Ron Howard finished it off. I have to look it up. Is it him? I, I don't know. I, I don't think... I can't remember the name of the person who was that. Ron Howard. But Craig, they want to know if Hillbilly Energy is Wait. worth it. Wait. <laughs> Ron <laughs> Howard Rogue One. This would be the perfect moment for Craig to get cramp again. Ron Howard will be stepping in to direct the upcoming solo Star Wars, but after the original step down, blah, 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 bl
Uh, uh, I can't remember his name. It wasn't Ron Howard. No, it wasn't. I, I don't know. Either way, Hillbilly Energy. <laughs> Thanks for that, Craig. <laughs> it is worth it. It's on Netflix. It is worth watching on Netflix. Um, it would have been worth watching in the cinema as well, in my opinion, even though it, to me it it had its flaws and it had too much of the ingredients in that pot being stirred around as well as the kitchen sink and the fairy liquid and everything else going in mm. on there. Um, but yeah, no, def- it is definitely worth watching, even though it is confused and a bit of a mess. And that brings us to the end of week 49 um, of Is It Worth It? The Film Review Podcast. We truly love making this podcast. Um, really do mean that. Um, and it's been, <laughs> it's really been a turbulent year. So from all, from all of the podcast team, myself, Craig and David. We just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. And quite simply, just thank you. Yes, please. Uh, please? Yes, thank you. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can also email the show. Um, yeah, you can almost email the show at mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. That email address again is mymailisworthit at isitworthitpodcast.com. You can also follow us on social media at Film Is Worth It on Twitter. Search for it on search for Is It Worth It podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And if you're listening online through the website, you can also subscribe to the podcast using Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music and basically all good podcasting apps. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, why not share it with a friend? Tell them to listen. We love all of our listeners and we want more of them. So spread the word. I could talk about this, but anyway. Um, He's been David. He's been Craig. And I've been Ranjit. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) How? How? Open the pod door, How? Let me out. (laughs) He's stuck on Pluto forever. I'm stuck in Pluto. Oh, no. What a shame.